Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotics. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Markland and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit thereptilereport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is... It's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our buy it now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad. It also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buying or selling? Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live, on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit thereptilereport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder, then visit shipreptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related. Welcome to another episode of Morelia Python Radio. Tonight we have Dr. Randon Feinsod joining us from Anti Care Animal Hospital. Um, he is uh, a, a vet there, and we're going to talk about um, some of the more advanced topics of uh, reptile keeping. 
for instance, we might hit on uh, respiratory infections, mites, internal parasites, ways uh, to uh, <laughs> for better husbandry um, and and such. Um, and 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 one of the one of the points that he brought up when we were going back and forth was uh, what you should bring when you're coming to the vet to help the vet better um, uh, prepare for the uh, you know um, the visit you know and to get I guess a better like analysis of uh, what's going on with your animal. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're gonna have him come on in a couple minutes. Um, cool. I guess we'll just uh, hit on uh, what's new with you, Owen. How's everything going? Uh, things are going well. I have no idea still what's going on with my eggs or my animals breeding season-wise. The big okay. freaking question mark over here. But um, <laughs> <laughs> we're waiting anxiously for potentially another clutch. Uh, other than that, um, picked up a few things coming i'll be announcing them later and uh you know gearing up for uh, i, I kind of looked at the calendar and realized carpet fest is um not too far away so i should do things to prepare for this and uh <laughs> i've started to do that so yes okay yes carpet fest the northeast carpet fest is uh literally a month and a week or a couple weeks away um mm-hmm it's on May 30th, 2015. Uh, if you're into carpets, uh, this is a, a, a must-attend event. Uh, get to hang out, uh, eat some good food, drink some good beer, and talk snakes. Uh, there's a lot of cool things happening in the carpet python world that I'm sure that uh, – there will be a lot of things to talk about, not to mention the fact that we'll be doing an auction to raise money for U.S. art. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, uh, you know, to fight the Lacey Act with the uh, recent additions. Um, so uh, stay tuned for that. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, we'll be making announcements that we're looking for donations for the auction. Uh, uh, if you have an animal, if you want to donate a voucher or something along those lines, we'd be uh, more than uh, happy to put that up there for you. It's a great way to do some stuff, and I hear it's tax deductible. So um, it's uh, something cool. It'd be something nice, and we usually have some good stuff. I know Buddy Buscemi is offering a chondro like he does every year. I'm probably doing a certificate. You're probably doing a certificate. Um, I'm probably going to end up trying to auction you off again. Um <laughs> No one ever takes you. But, Does the snakes uh, come with me? If the snakes come with me, then, the, you know. I might, oh, yeah. Uh, well, dude, I'll have so many takers. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, my God. Why didn't uh, I think about that? Yeah, there so, you go. It's, uh, uh, it, it's shaping up to be a really good time. And I'm getting ready for food's pretty much locked in already. It's, it's weird. That happened, like, so quickly and so easily. I don't know what to do with myself anymore. I mean... Uh, yes, I had pretty much. I mean, we, pretty much becoming a seafood uh, event, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had people step up pretty easily and offer a bunch of stuff. I mean, uh, Howard's bringing crabs, uh, Andy's bringing lobsters, Mike's bringing clams, and then uh, Nick from Massachusetts. I've, I'm totally blanking on your last name right now, Nick. I apologize. He's descending with Andy. 
a bunch of shrimp. So we have pretty much anything that would be a crustacean in the ocean is probably going to be served <laughs> up at Carpet Fest. So really, all I'm looking for now for people to bring is freaking booze and side dishes and desserts. Oh, there you go. Awesome. So it's yeah. like my work's halfway done. I don't know what to yeah. do with myself. So, um, yeah, it's looking really awesome, and uh, we're going to have a good time, I hope. And then, of course, we go to Clyde Peeling's place, and and then you have one. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, like, it's like I will see you for four days in a row. I, I know. I'm, I'm never going to want to see you again. So, I know. <laughs> yeah. We should probably cancel the show for that Tuesday. We should, really, yeah, we should, we should take some time apart. To prepare for such things. I mean, we're going to have yeah. nothing to talk about at yeah. the end of it. So. Oh, we're going to have so much to talk about. What are you kidding? I'm sure I'll I'll be drunk somewhere in a corner or something. And <laughs> I'm, sure I'll, I'm sure I'll vomit or get tossed off the fishing boat. So it's like, yeah, I mean, like this is obviously, they'll be plenty. So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, cool things. I um, real quick before we, before we bring the, uh, the doctor on, um, I, I woke up this morning, uh, uh-huh. probably about six o'clock in the morning, and you know I'm going. I, I go in my reptile room first thing in the morning, grab my cup of coffee, and just kind of mm-hmm. walk around and and check things out. And um, I had a surprise clutch. <laughs> I've never had that happen before, but there is definitely a look that a carpet. Py- well, I guess it's really a python, but I'm going to speak for carpet pythons. Um, there's definitely a look. Um, that uh, carpet pythons have when they're beehived around a clutch of eggs. Um, yeah. I, I looked and I, I noticed it and I said, wow, I didn't think that this girl was grabbit, but apparently she was. Um, I'm pretty excited about it because it's uh, striped coastals from uh, N-Ben, uh, Michael Pinnell, um, which as we know from last week's show uh, goes back to Lemke, bloodline coastals so uh you know it's uh, pretty excited about that the only downside mm-hmm. is is that uh she still has an egg in her but uh it's real uh, close yeah. to the vent so uh i'm gonna i'm gonna let it go uh and probably either early tomorrow morning or later tonight i'm gonna try to see if um she lays lays it or or i don't know i don't know what's gonna happen with that but uh We'll see. Uh, I guess. I guess if 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 I if she doesn't get it out and I can't palpate it out, I guess uh, I will be making a trip to the vet. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's kind of how it goes. Um, but that's the uh, the ins and outs of breeding uh, breeding live animals, I guess. So um, yeah. Look yeah. at you. You know, a, a, a year or two ago, I knew this boy. Who, who his, his little caramel had an impacted egg and he tweaked out and called me and several other people to come over and, you know, help him out and get you handling it all yourself. Uh, I put on my big boy pants. <laughs> yeah, you did. Adorable. Yeah. So enough of us rambling. Let's, uh, let's yes, get the, this party going. Hello, Dr. Feinside. How are you doing? Welcome to Morelia Python Radio. Uh, Glad to have you. Glad to be here, guys. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So, uh, Dr. Feinstein, if you could um, give us a brief overview, tell us um, 
about your journey to becoming a vet? Uh, what did you have to do and where did you go to school? So veterinary school is going to be a, a quite a bit like medical school. So you're going to go to four years of college. Most of the time you'll have to um, basically, you know, take courses that people would consider pre-vet or pre-med. Uh, and then uh, after that, you actually have to get into vet school. Um, mm-hmm. Personally, I uh, applied right away to a, a university called um, Ross University. It's outside the United States. It's down in the Caribbean islands. Um, and um, they're sort of um, willing to take people and give them a chance. So uh, mm-hmm. for me, it meant not going ahead and then doing a master's degree or a Ph.D. But uh, the average age starting in vet school right now is 26, 27. And I was actually graduated by the time I was 25. Wow. Uh, so uh, for me, I knew what I wanted to do, uh, and I didn't feel that it uh, was going to benefit me to wait. So I left the country. I got my degree. I practiced uh, for 10 years in New York City, uh, and now I'm mm-hmm. out in uh, York, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. So you're up close to me, actually. That works. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. So um, where did you do your uh, undergrad work? My uh, undergraduate was uh, near you as well. I uh, went to the University of Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. You Penn. All right. Yeah, yeah cool. I kind of <laughs> you've been following me apparently because I used to work there, so it's all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now, um, can you, what can you tell us about your current practice? Are you just seeing exotics or uh, all no, manner of critters? Small animal practice. Um, we still see a lot of dogs and cats. Um, we play around with the statistics sometimes. We're probably seeing about 25% exotic animals right now. Um, that uh, probably, you know, most commonly is going to be rabbits and guinea pigs and ferrets. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. we also see reptiles, birds, um, once in a while, small farm animals. So we'll see some chickens and ducks. And uh, many popular pigs are getting pretty popular out here. Um, so mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, and... Um, you know, I'm lucky enough to have staff that are interested in all that. So I have um, one of our staff members is a pretty big reptile keeper. Uh, my girlfriend's my practice manager um, and uh, has kept reptiles before and helps me with all my own. Um, so we've got uh, a pretty good base for the reptile community. Cool. Very cool. So um, how far has reptile medicine come over the past uh, a couple of years while you've been practicing? Uh, it's really, um, it's a totally different subject. Um, when I graduated, um, I think that there was probably, you know, uh, the beginning captive breeding. So you were still seeing uh, a lot of uh, corn snakes and, 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 you know, maybe some king snakes. Um, but uh, there certainly wasn't the amount of people uh, or the popularity of the captive breeding. Um, so, uh, I think that's changed quite a bit of what we're seeing. And then, uh, technology wise, um, the, uh, advancement as far as, uh, universities, uh, investing in their reptile departments and things like that, uh, the science that's going behind reptile medicine is just exploding. Um, so what I thought I once knew is, is, uh, nowhere near what, uh, you know, the current knowledge base is. Um, when I graduated, um, Doug Mater's uh, book from from ninety five ninety six, um, you know, was the the reptile medicine bible, um, and I think it was maybe three hundred pages. Um, that mm. uh, most recent book was two thousand six, uh, was his most recent update 
and uh, it currently is probably about 1,500 pages. And so much has changed since 2006 that they've had to um, get published a, uh, a transition book. It's basically not a new edition. It's just a compendium of all the uh, dramatic changes. Um, so there's some good chapters on things like chytrid and rhinovirus with frogs and then a lot of new advancements in rest house surgery and medicine. Um, probably for me personally, I think the biggest changes has been, um, you know, the, the information that's come out about uh, a lot of things like reptile viruses. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I think it was last year that they've been able to classify um, nidovirus and ball pythons as being one of the primary causes of some of their respiratory problems. Um, so, you know, it's taken us until 2014 to document the virus that most commonly causes those problems. Um, so, you know, it's been it's been a long haul. Um, a couple of years ago, they documented the virus that they think is causing IBD. But when I graduated, we didn't even know if that was viral. Um, so, uh, you know, again, the advancements in the information has been tremendous. Huge, huge change. Wow. That's crazy how that would go up so quickly. But um wow. Um now do you do you keep any reptiles or do you just strictly practice uh caring for them? I, I keep animals at home. We have uh animals at the clinic um as well. So um yeah, we have quite a big collection. Uh for the carpet fans, uh you know, the carpet fans, I have three carpets at home. Um and uh my first carpet plus was last year. So I now have uh eight babies that are growing quite well. So wow. <laughs> but uh, you name it, I've read uh, green tree pythons as well. Um, there's a quite a good collection right now of uh, Amazon tree boas. So quite a, oh. quite a diverse collection, but right now that's the stuff that uh, probably pertains to you guys the most. Yeah. Well, I, emerald tree boas and I have an agreement. I stay away from them. They stay away from me. And it's good Amazon tree boas, but... Um, I had a parrot in a long time ago, but right now it's just Amazon tree boas. Okay. Jeez. Well, cool. congrats on your first clutch last year. And, uh, are you going to repeat it? Or... Well, I'll probably next year. Giving her a year off, making sure she gains her weight back, and then uh, we'll see what happens. Cool. Definitely. Um. <clears throat> as far as uh, the research that's being done, is there a way that the listener could find uh, papers uh, that are written uh, about the advancement in um, reptile medicine? Is that like, could you look that up um, on Google Scholar? Probably. Um, I think that there's a couple of online sites that you can look up as well. Um, I can be pretty frank, though. I've been doing this for 15 years, and when I uh, was even looking up some of your questions just to make sure I was prepared, I found journal articles I'd never even seen before. Um, so every time I go, you know, and try to do research, it's amazing how much has been documented and how much isn't uh, coming out to the public, let alone right. the veterinary public. Um, so uh, just yesterday, looking something else, I found a journal article of a collection of corn snakes in Europe that they documented three new viruses in a single collection of snakes. Um, wow. So it, it's it's pretty amazing how much is changing, how fast it's changing. Um, but I think, uh, you know, some of those journal articles can be found. Um, personally, veterinarians use a, a website called VIN, which is the Veterinary Information Network. It's veterinary only. It's a place for us to do research and get the journal articles. 
Um, my brother is a uh, human physician, and when he has to order a new journal article, it costs him about 30 40 bucks. Luckily for us, it's, uh, it's only about uh, $11, $12 to, to, you know, download uh, an entire article. Um, but, gotcha. um, you know, everybody's going to have their own sites and, and their own ways of getting that info. The tougher part is trying to, to really, you know, weed through the, the garbage. I mean, there's going to be obviously a lot of people publishing their own stuff online, and that doesn't necessarily make it legit science. Um, right. So uh, trying to actually mm-hmm. look at the source that you're getting your info probably makes a, a really big difference. Um, so there's certain names that I'll recognize and, and see, and uh, when those guys' names are being published with these studies, it you know makes it a little bit more legit to me. Um, so there's some stuff out there that, um, you know, doesn't always uh, have good science or good medicine behind it. So you have to be careful with your sources. Gotcha. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I, I guess I guess I'm going to start with the, uh, the, the the easy question. What would be the number one reason that people would bring uh, their snake or their reptile in to see you? The number one problem. Number one problem right now is probably anorexia when a snake's not eating. Um, probably most of those people feel that that, uh, is secondary to, uh, respiratory infection. Um, but, um, you know, it really does depend on, on sometimes even the season. Um, so, uh, summertime, I think we see a lot more, uh, mite problems, probably, uh, bite wounds from rodents, um, even trauma escapes, things like that. Um, winter time, you definitely see a much stronger correlation with the respiratory infection. Okay. All right. Um, and I, I was talking to Chris, uh, and he was telling me that uh, you had some thoughts on um, about the use of three-dimensional space, uh, such as caging and perches over... I guess you dropped out. Anyway. Can you hear me? Uh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, uh, good. Um, yeah, I guess, was a I guess there. my co-host dropped out there. So, okay. um, so uh, Yeah, as far as three-dimensional cages, there's actually been really good research as far back as the uh, 80s. Um, mm-hmm. And there's even a, um, a welfare book written about reptiles um, and about how they should be kept. Um, and there's a lot of interesting uh, studies and material just in that one book alone suggesting um, by use of uh, studying things like stress hormones, which in, in reptiles is corticosterone. Um, and um, basically the three-dimensional environments, the larger environments, the more naturalistic environments, all are associated with better growth rates, better health, um, and uh, better reproduction, um, and lower stress level. Um, so all those things are obviously going to interact, um, you know, within the individual snake and then give you either a healthy animal or a sick animal. So uh, people need to understand when it comes to something like, uh, like a viral infection, um, you know, there are snakes that have viruses that are totally normal and don't act sick. So the difference ends up being nine times out of ten, the husbandry that they're given uh, when they're being kept in captivity. So um, small enclosures are notoriously difficult to have good thermal gradients. Um, mm-hmm. So when each snake gets sick, it, uh, it has a situation we call behavioral fever. It's going to want to sit in the hot spot a little bit longer and raise that body temperature up to, to be a little bit higher. Uh, and when you get into the technical science, it could be as simple as uh, certain digestive enzymes working better at uh, 88 degrees against a certain virus than uh, uh, 86, which might be more normal. 
Um, so a behavioral fever can be critical to them either showing symptoms or not showing symptoms. So a small right. you know, rack system, you're just not able to provide that. Um, just as important as temperature, you know, for certain individual species is going to be uh, exposure to ultraviolet light, exposure to humidity, uh, exposure to life cycle, so whether or not there's day life cycle, you know, day-night cycle. Um, when you look at um, snakes that have been studied in the wild, the, uh, the Amazon tree boas have been studied pretty well, and uh, they're going to see a different uh, hunting strategy and a different um, foraging behavior if it's a new moon versus a full moon. So with the brightness of a, new, uh, of a full moon, um, they're going to have to avoid predators and they're going to not be as active. In a dark wow. night, you know, in a new moon, they'll be more active. So there are those types of things that get discussed in those kinds of textbooks that, you know, makes you really think about, you know, how we're keeping these guys in captivity. If you, mm-hmm. uh, if you use zoological standards um, for what they use for other species, um, they typically recommend enclosures that are no smaller than four times the length of the animal by two times the length of the animal, and typically depending on if it's a terrestrial or a boreal species, you know, two to three times the length of the animal and height of the enclosure. So if you think about a carpet python or a green tree python being four to six feet, you know, you're talking enclosure sizes that should be based on AZA, you know, recommendations that can mm-hmm. be you know, 10, 12, 20 feet long. Uh, and how many of us are doing that? So uh, the three dimensions uh, also uh, typically stretches muscles and works the cardiovascular system and the pulmonary system completely differently. So, again, when it comes to welfare, you know, from the point of the well-being of the animal, yeah, you can't go big enough these days. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess I don't, I don't really foresee anybody putting 20-foot enclosures yeah. in their room, but... <laughs> but, uh, you know, personally, we expect to um, actually shift around a lot of our own cages and at least go a little bit more naturalistic, use things like live plants to help with humidity and filtering the air, um, okay. even uh, for most of our other uh, larger animals, so I have an iguana, um, they all go outdoors for the summer. Um, so the uh, in my iguana enclosure for, for the outside is... Uh, you know, 12 feet long, 8 feet high, uh, 8 feet wide. Mm-hmm. Um, so that way he can get a chance to, you know, run around and move and even have a pond big enough he can swim in. So, you know, I do think it's made for a much better situation. Uh, I don't know too many people, uh, you know, north of the Mason-Dixon line that breed iguanas, and we've bred ours successfully a couple of times. So okay. uh, I really do think that... Um, the increased complexity of a larger three-dimensional space is definitely going to make their lives better. Okay, so you would definitely recommend caging over racks and then offer perching if possible for right. I don't. I don't know anyone using rack system that's being able to address things like a day and night cycle correctly. No, um, you no, know, that's true. For things that you know, like nighttime drops and things like that, so uh, this makes it a lot more challenging. Yeah. Yeah, it, so it makes sense. I mean, so, um, what about the use of uh, basking spots versus standard flat temp method, um, and the long-term health effects associated with this type of keeping? Right. So again, you think about the thermal gradients and the terms like behavioral fever. Um, mm-hmm. In some snakes, it's been shown that even anaphorexia or the opposite of a fever, but cooling the body down uh, can be just as important. 
So um, not being able to provide a, a good thermal gradient is tremendous. Um, there's been some work done on the thyroid function in reptiles showing that if they don't get a nighttime drop, um, then that can be affecting their thyroid. And ultimately, the thyroid is going to affect all the other basic metabolic functions, so you'll have a mm-hmm. decreased immune system. Um, I don't know anyone who's ever cast a ball python, you know, 40, 50 years in a rack system. But in zoos, that's common. Um, so uh, I think the longest-lived snake in the Guinness Book of World Records for a while was a um, boa constrictor over at the Bronx Zoo. And that recently got surpassed by ball python. So, uh, you know, again, I don't know too many animals that have been in a rack system for 30, 40 years. So I, I think that uh, there has to be something to that. Wow. Yeah. I guess so. So uh, obviously, basking for parts or sites are right. So I do think that you know having the basking site is going to be critical, um, mm-hmm. and having that uh, gradient going from a high hot spot down to you know lower uh, end temperatures, which are probably approaching for most of our species at least room temperature, if not colder. Uh, in certain species, mount, you know, mount, you know, mountain type species, some montane species, uh, things like chameleons. Uh, if you don't drop them by 10, 20 degrees at night, they're not going to be healthy. Um, right. So you know, when we're dealing with something special, you know, like a, a Bolins or something like that, um, one of the higher end, you know, highland uh, type locales for something like green tree pythons, that could be critical to have nighttime drops going 60s, you know, maybe even lower. So okay. um, the thermal gradients are, are, are very important. Now, would you recommend a lamp? with UV spectrum or is a radiant heat panel good enough or? Well, you know, again, I, I personally, you know, tell my clients that I think that there's a huge difference. I don't think that when you get down to these things that you can just make sort of broad spectrum uh, um, statements. So there are certain products I think are far better than others. Uh, I mm-hmm. personally only use the pro heat panels in my own house. Um, knowing that the owner um, I know that his radiant panels are, are um, producing, you know, radiation in the spectrum that's consistent um, with the same spectrum that human beings and mammals need to improve digestion and circulation. Um, so I don't know how technical some of the other panels get, um, but that to me shows that the thought level going into a, a heat panel is, is tremendous. Uh, I've recently started using things like a FLIR imager, to look mm-hmm. at the, the heat patterns within an enclosure and, and within the animal itself. Um, and I definitely see a more uniform uh, heat signature on snakes that are under a UV, uh, excuse me, a uh, pro heat panel. Um, oh. As far as UV um, is concerned, um, it uh, you have to, again, go back to things like the welfare textbook. Um, mm-hmm. Most reptiles probably see in ultraviolet light. So if we're talking about having a proper day-night cycle um, and having a proper color spectrum, um, most of the time we think that most snakes probably see better color than we do. Um, so the human eye and the uh, egocentric you know, human doctors have always looked at the human eye as being the standard for color vision. Um, humans use uh, three, co- three cones to see color. Um, reptiles have been shown to have two. Birds have been shown to have two, but they're double-peaked. So they function as four different cones as opposed to three. So they actually see color vision better than we do. Uh, and one of those really? cones goes into the ultraviolet spectrum. So ultraviolet A, which is the first type of ultraviolet outside of what human beings see, which is what ultraviolet means, it's in the blue spectrum outside of what a human can see, is considered normal to uh, uh, an insect, 
to a reptile to a bird. Um, but uh, again, um, providing that, it may be important for things like stress hormone release and things like that. We, we don't know in a lot of these species. Recently, it's been shown that some of the snakes, um, I know for sure corn snakes have been studied, um, their body responds to ultraviolet B the same way that a chameleon or a human would in the sense that it converts their uh, uh, vitamin D into its active form. So vitamin D level is linked with the immune system, so it goes again back to, to, to health and, and herd immunity. Um, with uh, vitamin D in snakes, we know that it can improve clutch size. It can improve things like eggshell density. Um, so there's a lot of things that that could be benefiting. Now, the only other python I know of that's been studied um, when it comes to ultraviolet is the ball python. And as of right now, the ball python does not respond to ultraviolet B. Um, so its vitamin D level doesn't change. Um, so it fits more of a model of a true carnivore, something like a cat where they have to absorb their vitamin D from their food. Um, so there's physiological hmm. and there's psychological benefits. Um, as for now, we don't know, you know, where, where something like maybe Morelia fit into that. No one's studied Morelia yet. Um, I know of a uh, herpetologist in uh, England who did a study of ultraviolet transmittance through shed skin. And uh, the green tree python um, allows more ultraviolet through its tissue than most other snakes. Uh, and actually, I think hmm. it was the most of any reptile. So UV light is damaging, then why are they absorbing it? Um, so they must, you know, they probably respond anyway, I think, to the ultraviolet, you know, physiologically. Um, so, yeah, when it comes to light spectrum, we think that um, there's a lot of stuff that we're going to learn. There's a lot of um, um, veterinarians that are practicing in university settings that are currently studying this stuff. So we'll probably hear a lot more about that in the next few years. Wow, that's awesome. Wow, that's fascinating. <clears throat> Sorry, I dropped it out, guys, but uh, I'm back. Um, <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's just uh, blows my mind. Uh, but uh, what's the biggest uh, mistake you see uh, keepers making when it comes to reptile husbandry? Uh, you know, um, I, I think, unfortunately, I don't see a lot of breeders. So I think that the most common mistake for the average person keeping snakes is just not knowing their species. Um, so not knowing basic husbandry requirements. Um, I think we, we touched on the fact that, um, you know, one of the things we wanted to talk about is what uh, clients can be doing to improve their vet visit. Um, so by having things prepared, like not just, yes, I have heat, yes, I have a thermometer, but, you know, what brand of light bulb are you using? What brand of heat panel are you using? Um, because, again, I don't think all these things are created equal. Uh, I was telling a client just today a story where we had a, a, um, a boa constrictor come to us as a second opinion. The guy had already had biopsies on the skin done, had cultures and sensitivities of his uh, lungs and, the, and these wounds that he was having on his skin done. It's been over $1,000. Um, I took the snake. I put it in a 6-foot by 2-foot by 18-inch tall PVC cage with two radiant heat panels. Within two weeks, he shed. His wounds were half the size, and he started feeding after not feeding for six months. So what's the difference? You know, again, it's the enclosure. He was using an old wooden cage. Wood, we know, absorbs the uh, debris and pathogen and moisture really well. It can promote mm -hmm. things like fungal growth. Um, so his enclosure just wasn't right, uh, and it just wasn't, you know, wasn't following good basic husbandry advice. Um, you know, we see a lot of people feeding live, and uh, uh, the rodent bites 
statistically, I think across the country, it's been shown to be one of the number one reasons why people go to the vet uh, is when their snake gets bit by the by the rat. Um, so, um, you know, there the, can't be one specific thing, but basically just a lack of knowledge of the species involved. Um, so, you know, if you're a desert species and you're not keeping it dry, that could lead to uh, fungal infection in the lungs. So, uh, you know, if you have a wild-caught snake and you haven't checked it for parasites, uh, if you have an iguana and it doesn't have a hot spot reaching 95 to 100 degrees and they don't have ultraviolet light, um, for me, when I'm looking at things uh, like husbandry and things not being created equal, it, you know, you could go to a, a brand like Zoomed, buy a coil lamp, a, a fluorescent tube, or a mercury vapor bulb. And if you have a, a bearded dragon, I don't think you're doing them justice unless you're using the mercury vapor. Um, if, uh, if you're using a coil lamp, they've been known to be very concentrated up close in, in things like um, um, what they call uh, um, like the inflammation of the cornea and the, and the surrounding tissues of the eye can, can occur pretty easily from, uh, from a lamp like that. Um, so, um, you know, those different types of products can be very different, you know, for each species. So for right now, my snakes are generally going under at least a full-spectrum lamp um, and then uh, depending on which species we're talking about, most of my others will go under a fluorescent UVA, UVB lamp. Uh, so certainly most of my diurnal snakes uh, have, uh, you know, uh, flying snakes, um, and uh, they're under ultraviolet light. Um, I've kept, um, we do a lot of rescue work, and in PA you're allowed to have venomous snakes. So we've done some work with uh, rattlesnakes, and we've had it where rattlesnakes don't eat. You put them under ultraviolet light, and they start eating again. Um, so, um, you know, it really does depend on the species and, and, and you know, what the, how they're being kept. You know, unfortunately, most common pet stores, you know, you you got a kid who likes reptiles who's still in high school selling you stuff. Um, that's not going to compare to the information that I have. Um, so, um, you know, when you talk about common mistakes, most of the time, I hate to say it, it's just ignorance, just not knowing your species. Um, so it, it, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty... Obviously, reptile keeping these days is pretty complex, so it's not going to be a single mistake. So the most common is just not knowing what's proper for that animal. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what about uh, when it comes to uh, obesity in snakes? Um, do you see a lot of that? What's your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I mean, obesity is definitely one of the biggest problems that every American faces, so whether or not it's humans, dogs, cats, or snakes. Um, mm -hmm. I definitely find, especially with snakes, uh, you probably see it a lot with uh, certain lizards, probably little things like chameleons, um, where people buy them to see the way they eat. Um, people want to see a constrictor constrict. They want to see a chameleon shoot its tongue out. Um, so uh, overfeeding is, is, you know, very, very common. Um, I've gotten into uh, some pretty in-depth conversations with uh, herpetologists at zoos and, and things like that over you know, what's the best prey item? Is a rat better than a mouse? Uh, and some people would argue the percentage of body fat in a rat is higher than a mouse. Um, but, you know, just like in human medicine, sometimes you've got to think about healthy fat versus unhealthy fat. Um, so for some of my own reptiles right now, I actually use red palm oil uh, and put it into my frozen rodents because it's offering then omega-3 fatty acids, which are going to be healthy fat. Um, I see... Um, I lost a uh, Amazon tree boa. I think it was going on last year. Uh, that when I did uh, a necropsy, which is an animal autopsy, 
uh, and biopsied some of the tissues, the, the um, most significant finding was steatitis. It was inflammation to the fat bodies in the caudal half of the body. Um, mm -hmm. And um, that turns out that probably it was nutritional. Uh, if you overheat your frozen th uh, thawed rodent, uh, you're actually damaging some of the vitamins. Um, so uh, a slower thaw method, you know, could be really important there. And when you're dealing with the obesity, not having certain vitamins, specifically uh, vitamin E, um, could be one of the triggers for something like steatitis. Um, so the obesity, it's a lot, you know, it, it, there's obviously the simple way of looking at it, you're overfeeding your animal, um, but then there's mm -hmm. also what are you feeding your animal? You know, is it a, a morbidly obese spent breeder mouse? you know, or a young rat. I mean, you know, those two animals to me are very, very different. They may weigh the same amount, um, but I think that the nutritional value is very different. Um, when we think about, you know, the, how many different species of rodents and birds, something like a carpet python or a, or a green tree might be able to eat in, in, in the wild, um, then obviously variety is going to be the spice of life when it comes to diet uh, and completing that diet. So uh, obesity is huge, and it also goes back to... Um, just like in humans, you've got diet on one side, and then the other side is the exercise. Um, so, again, a rack system versus a three-dimensional enclosure are going to be offering totally, completely different forms of exercise. Uh, hauling your body up onto a tree uh, is obviously going to be very different than sitting in a rack on a flat surface. Um, so, again, when it comes to obesity, you have to look, I think, at both sides of that equation. True. Now, uh, can we... Talk about respiratory infections in snakes. Sure. Um, what uh, do you find are the main causes of respiratory infections in snakes? So I think um, just the definition of that question shows you how far apart I think veterinarians and keepers are. Um, uh -huh. There's not going to be a common cause. There's going to be just about anything you can think of. Um, we're taught in school um, when we think of a certain problem, you know, what are, uh, you know, how many things could cause that same problem? So pneumonia can be caused because you've inhaled a toxin. So how many of us, when our cat, you know, our uh, um, snake is, is uh, uh, you know, bubbling at the glottis, you know, ever think of, you know, did I just bleach that cage and, and cause a literal burn to the, to the tissue? Um, so when you talk about common causes, everybody wants to break it down to, to maybe virus and bacteria. Um, but, um, you know, I can, I can give you a, a ton of evidence um, for parasites, for fungus. Um, you know, if, uh, if anyone pays attention to what's happening with wild snakes right now, you know, we've recently documented what people are calling uh, snake fungal disease, um, which is the, uh, uh, I think it's a city of mycetes right now. Um, it's a pathogen related to the yellow skin fungus of beta dragon, uh, and it's destroying snakes' faces. And if you look at um, some of the pictures, pretty similar to what people would call mouth rot. Uh, and I have an old reptile textbook that used to classify mouth rot as a, as a type of uh, respiratory infection. Um, so, again, uh, depending on species, there are going to be certain things that will show up more often. Um, again, I mentioned before that three, um, well, that there was a new virus with the ball python. Well, it turns out that three independent universities came up with the same viral pathogen for the respiratory infections that you see in bulk pythons. And right now, that's believed that that can be, um, you know, that, that, that same virus could probably affect most other species of pythons. So for people who have a bulk python and a carpet python, 
then something like NIDA virus might be very, very common. Um, the other thing I think a lot of people make a mistake or an assumption with something like uh, pneumonia is that it's bacteria. Um, and what we're actually finding, it's not ever going to be one certain bacteria. A lot of these bacterial infections in the lung or the glottis, the trachea, uh, are all going to be secondary to the virus itself. So uh, the paramyxovirus, nidovirus, uh, arenavirus, there's all sorts of viruses and reptiles that we know um, basically lead to secondary bacterial infection. Um, so is the bacteria the primary problem or the secondary problem? So, you know, again, you can get a, a mixture of the two problems. Uh, it's very common with uh, lungworm, um, which would be uh, uh, something we probably see more often in a, in a, in a wild-caught snake. Um, to have uh, um, the lungworm and then secondary bacterial infection because of that. So again, you can put them on antibiotics, they'll get better, but then they'll just fall apart again because you never address the primary cause. Um, so mm -hmm. defining the primary cause is probably the more important situation. So certainly if you ever have an outbreak, you really want to get some testing done. Um, what I standardly do now if, uh, if uh, you know, a snake comes in with a respiratory infection question, um, we typically do what's called a transtracheal wash. Uh, I pass a sterile tube down the throat of the snake, and some snakes you can actually do this awake, um, put a little bit of sterile saline in, mix it up, suck it back out again, and then put that under a microscope. If I see bacteria, then I'm going to culture it and find out what bacteria are living there and find out how to kill it. Uh, you can mm -hmm. also find parasites. We had a... Um, boa constrictor, I think it was two years ago, come in with uh, respiratory signs, and when we flushed its lung out, it came off with an unknown protozoa parasite um, and was able to clear that out pretty easily with a couple of doses of anti-parasite medicine. Um, I've had um, something called, a, uh, if anyone's less familiar with it, um, a uh, cat eye dog tooth snake. And um, yeah, when we did the flush, we found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of worm eggs. Um, so it needed, again, a, just a standard deworming. Um, so, um, you know, as far as a common cause, you know, we typically think virus and bacteria, but you can literally see virus, bacteria, fungus, parasites. Um, the old days of ball pythons, it was very common to see snake mites uh, in the lung. There was actually a separate oh. species of mite that lived in the lung of pythons. Um, so, again, with the wild-caught animals, you're going to see some very different things than you would a captive animal. Um, but uh, I think right now, especially in a large population of snakes, you know, the average thought would be, the first thing I would think anyway would be viral, uh, and then mm -hmm. the second thing would probably be secondary bacterial infection. Um, but, uh, again, if, uh, if we're going to find bacteria, you have to remember if the initial cause was the virus, then it's whatever local bacteria can get into that wound. So just think of, you know, as a kid, you're out at the park, you, you know, slip and fall, you scrape your knee. Um, what caused the problem? Did the fall traumatize your knee or did the bacteria cause the infection? So it was the trauma that allowed the bacteria in in the first place. So, um, you know, a lot of people, I think, get that way too confused when it comes to reptile medicine. I have literally had people call me up. I'm a snake breeder. I know what I'm doing. I just need Batril. Mm -hmm. And it's like, why do you need Batril? And they're like, well, he has an infection. I said, well, how do you know it's a bacteria? And they said, well, I've seen this before. I said, well, what bacteria is it? And they say, well, I don't know. And I said, well, how do you know Batril's going to work? And they said, well, that's what I did last time. And I said, well, 50% of infections are anaerobic bacteria, which means they grow without oxygen, and Batril doesn't work on those species. So you literally have a 50-50 chance that Batril might help you. And that's just assuming there's no you know, drug resistance. 
Um, the other thing that's been documented with the bacteria recently is that for whatever reason, reptiles seem to attract the drug-resistant bacteria. Um, yeah. You know, super bacteria, when it's defined by the CDC, is a bacteria that's resistant to four antibiotics or more. Uh, it's not uncommon for me to culture bacteria that are resistant to 10 or more. So those things are approaching, you know, the scare factor of MRSA. Um, because, again, if those things get to you, if your snake with mouth rot bites you and you get that bacteria, there may not be a drug that can kill it. Um, so, again, I think that uh, when it comes to these kinds of questions these days, it, it, it's really complex. There's not going to be one straightforward answer. Um, you know, when it comes to the virus, when people want treatment, there are times that if you switch from a rack system to a three-dimensional cage with a, with a pro-heat panel on it, it probably gets better on its own. Um, you know, if there are times that we can increase ventilation so that the humidity is not so high, some of these things would go, go away on their own. Um, so uh, it's not like there's one specific thing that can cause respiratory infection. Um, mm -hmm. I remember a, uh, a case study two years ago in a crested gecko with mouth rot, uh, and it turned out to be a parasitic worm in the gums of the, of the lizard. So, you know, if we see that in a lizard, why wouldn't we see that in a snake? But how many people get the gums scraped and looked at under a microscope? So, uh, yeah, there's not going to be one thing. But, uh, again, in a large collection, probably thinking along the lines of virus first. Uh, and then, uh, like I said, I would normally sample the lungs and see what's living in there and then try to make a good decision based on that. Wow. So I guess your definite recommendation would be to take the time, spend the money, and get everything cultured to see the best way to fight whatever it is that's yeah, okay. If you don't do the culture, you're not going to necessarily get the right antibiotics. And again, right. if it's not bacterial, then you're barking up the wrong tree altogether. And, uh, right. you know, from talking with, with, with Chris Salemi, I know a lot of you guys have some pretty expensive snakes. You know, if you get a new <laughs> virus that's going to, you know, bounce around and, and, and affect, you know, 25% of your collection, you know, how much financially is that worth? It doesn't matter. Oh, the thing as thick is the cheap one. Yeah, yeah. You can you can rack up the bills pretty high. So yeah, just doesn't give you know, your other losses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I find that pretty funny that you have somebody that would spend five thousand dollars on a snake but won't take it to get you know. Take spend it, you know, a couple yeah, hundred bucks to get it checked. But it's something that we unfortunately deal with on a regular basis. They think because they spent $5,000, they know that snake better than I do. And, uh, you know, it's a little frightening. And they'll tell me flat out, no, my breeder told me all I need was Betro. I go, well, that's yeah. because your breeder obviously has something in their system that they know responds to Betro. So they have a problem to begin with. Um, because, again, that's, uh, that's it, you know, it's not worth it sometimes. It's definitely not a DIY project. Yeah, definitely. So being that it is, obviously important to catch it early. What are some of the signs you would look for in early onset RI? Well, you know, you guys, uh, you know, I was listening to your intro in the beginning. You were talking about waking up, grabbing a cup of coffee, and going checking your snakes. Um, mm -hmm. Knowing your snakes and keeping records is probably the best thing that, that you guys can be doing because you're going to know when your snake is off feed. You're going to know when a snake should be coming into shed, so maybe that's why it didn't eat. Um, you know, and, and you'll be having those charts that can show you that this snake, you know, normally, you know, eats three meals and then poops. So you're going to get those basics that sometimes people are going to miss. 
obviously if you have a tame snake and you can do a, a basic physical and, you know, open its mouth and look at it, that can help. Um, but on a more hands-off approach, just by observing your snake, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a snake yawn and then seen a little crud in its mouth and went, oh, God, what happened, you know? And then uh, mm-hmm. if you keep him back there, you may remember that, you know, oh, you know, he uh, he struck up the glass the other day and he busted some teeth. Well, it's like the skin knee at the park. It probably just is a superficial infection and, and can be cleaned out and, and probably would be fine. Um, but uh, certainly if you, if you have, you know, um, bubbling, if you can hear that click uh, when they're breathing, some people talk about it as being a clicking noise in their throat. Um, I, I personally uh, have gotten pretty good at looking at the glottis, the tube that they breathe through. And you can usually mm-hmm. see how thick that looks. Um, you know, so the tissue might look inflamed or thickened. Sometimes it looks uh, um, almost dry, um, and uh, um, sometimes their saliva is going to look thicker. You know, it might be more cloudy, their saliva. Um, so when it comes to respiratory infections, I mean, being hands-off, you can you can see some of that stuff without picking them up. Um, you know, when we talked about, the, you know, a human being going through a stress test, you know, when you pick up the snake and you're handling it, it's obviously increasing his exercise level. Uh, and demand for oxygen. So sometimes, you know, handling the snake, you might pick up on something. Um, you know, sometimes you can feel the rattle in their chest when they're moving across your hands. Um, mm-hmm. So just being observant of your own snakes and knowing their their normal behavior, knowing what their normal anatomy looks like. Um, Doug Mater, the uh, uh, editor for the for the last couple of reptile medicine textbooks, uh, lectures us all the time on knowing what normal is. He has a real classic story of uh, the first bearded dragon he ever looked at. And with the wild-caught bearded dragons, a lot of them have a lot of yellow pigment in their throat. So this was, I think, in the 1980s or something. He, he went to his mentor and said, hey, look, uh, you know, I just diagnosed liver disease in, in a bearded dragon. And, you know, his mentor was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, look at his mouth. It's all yellow. Um, but he had never seen a bearded dragon before. He didn't know that some of them have yellow in their mouth. So knowing your own normal is, is just as important as anything. Um, so being able to, to observe your snakes and knowing the normal feeding pattern, when they are feeding, look at their mouth. Look at the, what's happening inside um, and see if the glottis is bubbling or swollen or, or uh, you know, again, has the thicker saliva. Um, but, um, yeah, you just got to know your own snakes, I think, in those situations. Makes sense. Yeah. Because, you know, you're going to be the first one to notice that they're not acting right. Yeah, exactly. Or you should be the first one to notice. Yeah, you should, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, the next topic we wanted to hit on is probably the one that most reptile keepers probably dread more than anything. Shudder at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, God. It seems nobody likes to talk about them, but what what would you say the best way to treat for mites um, would be? You know, I don't think that there's going to be one set standard. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it's just like fleas and dogs. Um, prevention is going to be the key. Um, so for me, I, you know, I told you guys before that I do a lot more naturalist environments these days. So I'm using, uh, you know, a lot more mulches and, and uh, even organic potting soil. Um, so uh, I always spray my substrate with Preventamite. Um, I think it's still one of the only uh, FDA-approved products for reptiles. Um so, um, you know, as a prevention method, that's going to be huge. Uh, obviously, simple things, and this goes for the respiratory infections uh, as well. You know, quarantine is, is definitely, from my experience, way overlooked. 
You know, I talk to people, and I'm like, did you quarantine the animal? And they're like, yeah, I put it in a rack with the other three snakes. And it's like, that, well, that's not quarantine. quarantine. <laughs> um, so, you know, in, in, a, in a zoo, the quarantine facility is not even located in, in, in the Serpentarium. Uh, it's in a different building. Um, you know, when it comes to, to quarantine, whether it's, again, mice or infection, how long is, is long enough? And in some of those situations, we don't know. There was, uh, um, uh, I think, a journal article recently of, uh, of an infection from paramyxovirus in a snake, and it was quarantined, I think, for over nine months, um, and yet it still spread that virus. Um, when it comes to mice, I think we've got that cycle down a little bit better. I think we know that those eggs can stay dormant. Uh, I think it's a, a couple of months duration. So, you know, again, you're not technically clear as far as I'm concerned with mites for probably three four months. Um, but um, being diligent, diligent about, you know, staying on top of it, um, catching those things early. You know, there's been times, uh, especially since I'm using the natural substrates, where I'll find mites in one cage and it's connected to three others and none of the other animals have it. Because if you catch it quick enough, you take them out, you treat that individual animal, and then spray those cages down, and you can really stop, you know, an outbreak in its tracks. Um, as far as treating the snake with mites, I typically use ivermectin. Um, I've had good success with it. There's standard doses, uh, you know, written in any medical textbook for that. Um, I use a compound pharmacist, which is a, a pharmacist who can take a drug and make it into different forms uh, or concentrations. So the standard, you know, cattle ivermectin is probably too strong for most small snakes. So I have one kept at my clinic that uh, has a more diluted concentration, so I can use it in something that's 10 grams or, or, or 15 grams. Um, so uh, if I have to deworm, a, you know, a small snake or if I have to, you know, treat mites in a smaller animal, I can do that safely. Um, so that's typically what I do in my own house and for my clinic is use ivermectin to treat the individual snake uh, and then have the cages sprayed down with something like preventamide. Okay. That's um, something that uh, they treat, uh, like, so for instance, if you're going to spray preventamide, is that... Uh, Every time you change the substrate, I've heard some people that don't even really change the substrate because that would spread the mites throughout your collection. Um, right. So, if, you know, if you if you had the cage that had the mite, then, um, you know, I'm going to remove the snake. Um, I have uh, um, snake bags in my house and pillowcases and stuff that are that are sprayed with preventamite. So, if I bring home a new animal, it's going to go through quarantine. It's going in that bag before I do anything. Um, and then um, if I if I had a mite outbreak, again, I take the snake out, I put it in the bag, give it the shot of ivermectin, then clean that cage. So in order to clean that cage, I would start with spraying the cage. Uh, and then, um, you know, I typically use a small dustpan to start scooping it out uh, and then a vacuum after that to, to try to clean out. You, uh, you have to think of mites almost like the bacteria. If you don't scrub the surfaces clean, you're probably not, you know, removing some of the eggs. Um, so, uh, if I have cages that are close by with other cages, then I'm going to spray those cages too. So that if I do, uh, kick up some dust or something and, and, and spread those eggs around that those other cages are up to date, you know, on their treatment. I think currently with a product like Pro Products, I think it's staying power is about a month. Um, so if I haven't sprayed those cages and that goes back to the record keeping, um, so if I haven't sprayed them within that month, you know, then I'm definitely going to respray them. Um, you know, and, and keep make sure that everything else is up to date. Uh, and I have probably over 50 enclosures in my house. And, you know, I had uh, um, a mite infection last year, I think it was, with, when I got some fresh um, 
organic cotton soil, and uh, it never expanded past that one cage. Um, so luckily enough, I stopped it dead in its tracks. Now, one quick thing I have is uh, kind of like a home remedy I've heard about that could potentially do some work. Um, I think it's uh, mixing like a dip solution with um, mix lice shampoo. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, it's just, you know, it's people making up their, their own techniques. Um, the, the difference between me using ivermectin and preventamite uh, and someone else using NYX is the stuff that I use has been proven in, in science. Um, so ivermectin has been clinically studied to, to be proven against the mice. Uh, it's been, you know, as far as the dosages and dose recommendations, they've been studied, you know, at university level to not be toxic. Um, when it comes to preventamide, it, you know, it has government standards for the same issues. I mean, it was studied to be sprayed directly on tortoises. Um, so, uh, you know, as far as the safety track record, it's a, it's a proven effective treatment that has scientific research behind it. Um, uh-huh. you know, I've been, you know, I've been in the business since I'm 14 years old, you know, as far as, uh, uh, working at a pet store, I've been keeping snakes since I'm eight. Um, we've used Listerine, uh, Dawn dish soap, you know, Nick, Humming Dust, um, you know, uh, off, uh, you name it. I've heard some, some pretty amazing things out there. Um, but the reason why I use ivermectin and preventamide right now is because it's studied. It's been proven. Uh, and it's been proven, you know, it's not a court of law, but, it, you know, it's the science court of law because it's got journal and references and university studies to back. Um, so that's why I use those. Uh, I've, mm-hmm. um, I've experimented personally with Revolution, which is a dog flea and tick product. Um, yeah. They did some research with the deworming effect of some of these topical on uh, on some, uh, I think it was turtles and some other stuff um, with some of the other uh, topical stuff from dogs and cats. Um, but the research is very limited. So, you know, after 15 years, I've stopped, you know, using things like 7Dust and some of the other things that I used to do in the past because this is what works for me. Uh, and uh, as a veterinarian, the tougher part of making a recommendation like using Nix is that when it's not been studied before and something goes wrong, then you know there, there's mm-hmm. no there's no way for me to say it wasn't malpractice. Uh, if I True. can say that you know the pharmacology textbook on page 73 recommended this dose for this species, then I'm protected if something goes wrong. Um, so it uh, you know it's a little bit harder for me to stray from what other people do um, because I have to go by what's in the scientific literature. Makes sense, and that, that that's you know obviously everybody has their own tricks to, you know, home remedies and stuff like that. So, you know, yeah. but... Uh, you know, and then, you feel- again, if you think about some of these things that people do, you mentioned mix. You know, mix mm-hmm. is for lice. Lice are insects and mites are arachnids. So how many flea products are out there that don't kill ticks? So, you know, what you're talking about is essentially the same thing. So is it really just not the soap cleaning off the mites itself? you know, and just removing them, or is it something that's actually killing them? So those things Hmm. are the kinds of questions that that commonly get mistaken by owners. You know, oh, yeah, he's on on Sweet and Tick product, and what are you using? Advantic, I mean, Advantage. Um, And I said, Advantage? And they're like, yeah, well, that just kills sleep. Or they'll tell me they're on program, which just sterilizes sleep. It doesn't even kill sleep. So, you know, when you're dealing with these insect growth regulators versus you know, pesticides and, and, and arachnocytes, they, they could be very, very different things. So, again, when it comes to experimenting, you know, 
basically is what's, what's what we're talking about, then, yeah, there are going to be some home remedies that have worked in the past. Um, I'm a big fan of Don Dish Soap just because I think it physically removes the eggs easily um, because it is as a detergent. It's cleaning the oils and getting under the scales and things like that. Um, so it's not that I think it kills them, but it can help clean them. Um, so it could still be part of the program, but I'm not going to use that and say that it's killing them because we don't have proof of that. Okay. No, it, it, it's obviously there's several reasons. And you said you inject the animals with ivermectin or do you use it as a topical? No, I inject it. Um, okay. Uh, again, depending on different species, you can get very different absorption levels. Uh, and because I have it as an injection in the clinic, and, and again, it's a, in a dose range that makes it easy for me to use in small reptiles, uh, I'm either going to inject it or I'll give it orally. Okay. So now for in other internal parasites, because I know that some of the listeners do deal with uh, certain wild-caught species. Um, uh, what should they do to try to establish uh, an animal successfully? So, you know, it, it, there's a lot to that. It's not such a simple black and white issue. Um, mm. There are parasites that, that may be more commensal-like where they're not really harming the animal. Um, so the bottom line is you've got to get an idea on the species. So, you know, right now probably the most common way to do that is with a fecal exam. When we do fecal exams in our clinic, uh, we typically do a fecal flotation. So that's where we mix the feces with a salt solution. And just like an ice cube, the egg parasites will float to the surface. Um, there are certain known species that sink instead of float. So sometimes mm -hmm. you have to do a segment rather than a float. Um, and that's one way to find parasites. With a lot of the smaller species, I'll take the entire fecal sample, mix it with some saline, and look at it under the microscope directly. Uh, and again, by IDing the, the at least the, 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 the egg uh, down to a, a, you know, a group of parasites. Um, you know, sometimes we're not going to know the scientific name of that individual parasite, but it may be, you know, like a strongyle is, is a group of worms, um, so it could be a strongyle-type egg, and if it is, well, we know that pyrantles and bendazole, as I mentioned, probably will kill that. If it's a tapeworm, we may need something like fenbendazole or, or prosequantil for that. Um, so identifying the species is the first and foremost. And getting a fecal uh, exam is not particularly stressful on anybody but you. Um, so getting mm -hmm. that fecal <laughs> and getting that looked at, um, you know, is, is the only real, you know, stress for the animal. Um, and then once we know what species, we can better identify, you know, is, is it normal for that species? Is it common in that species? Is it known to cause pathology in that species? Um, because one of the common things that's happening these days is uh, just like with the viruses, um, you're going to see parasites that are in species that it doesn't belong. So if you're a, a wild snake and, and in the wild your, your species is used to a certain parasite, you learn to live with it. You learn to adapt to it. But if all of a sudden you have a carpet python and you're mixing that with a green tree python and those parasites don't belong in that green tree python, then it can potentially kill that snake. Um, so uh, for the purposes of being technical, um, then uh, actually, in order to know whether or not it's pathological, you're talking about getting something like a biopsy. Um, so, uh, you know, when it comes to parasites, it can be pretty simple or it can be pretty complex. So the bottom line is you got to figure out what the species is and then whether or not that's important to that individual snake. 
Um, because again, there are times that a pinworm in a bearded dragon or, a, or an iguana, I'm going to ignore. Uh, a strongyle species in a python, I'm going to take a lot more seriously. Um, so that's one of those uh, species that can be invading things like its lungs and then causing the uh, RI symptoms. So uh, it depends on, on again, the, the, the type of worm and parasite we're talking about. And that's something to point out, too. A lot of people think of the term parasite and just think worms. But parasite is any animal that infects any other animal. So there are parasites that live only in the blood. So if you don't take a blood sample, you'll never find it. Um, recently, we have a, a snake in the clinic with, a, with a, two different parasites within its blood. And uh, talking to the uh, experts down at the University of Florida, they don't even know what species it is. So uh, I just paid, um, you know, paid them to do DNA testing on the parasites to figure out what it is so I can figure out whether or not it's important and whether or not I need to try to kill it. Um, so, uh, you know, it's something that, um, you know, there are things that we don't even ID yet. So here I am trying to get the genetic studies done on this parasite to even know whether or not I'm going to try and kill it. Um, so, um, you know, parasites come in a lot of different forms. So with your wild-caught snakes, I mean, if we're going to get back to that, I think, you know, set them up as, as appropriately as you can get the proper thermal gradients and humidity and cover. And, you know, if it's a uh, rainforest species, maybe having live plants in it, you know, try to get that so the snake feels as, as at home as possible. Um, try to get it as natural prey source as possible. And if he's eating, he's defecating and doing other things normally, tracking things like body weight, you know, and growth and, and things like that might be more important than whether or not he has a parasite. True. So now, um, I know that some parasites uh, can be really stressful in getting rid of. Um, I think it's like heartworm in dogs can, you know, is really not good. Uh, is there something like that in snakes where it almost is like that the treatment would be worse than just living with it? Uh, you know, again, I think it depends on the parasite. Um, okay. there are, uh, you know, you talk about stressful and invasive, there are species of reptilian lungworm um, that uh, can cause some pretty serious damage to human beings. So it would be considered what we call a zoonotic parasite. Um, so uh, I think that pentastomids um, can actually get into your body and cause cysts and tumor-like swellings and things like that. So at what point is it more about you and not about the snake? Um, and, you know, in a species like that, it's this large, uh, almost armor-plated worm. Um, so it's not something you're going to deworm that snake and expect it to go away. Um, so when you talk about stress on the animal, yeah, it's causing a problem, and it's going to cause problems like pneumonia. It could predispose to those viral infections again and all that other stuff. So you do want to get rid of it. So that the idea ends up becoming, what are you willing to do about it? Um, so there's a good case study in an indigo snake, and I think this was from Doug Mater, the guy who wrote the textbook, uh, where he went in endoscopically um, with a flexible endoscope camera and uh, used a biopsy forceps to physically remove the worm, uh, and the snake recovered unevently and started eating immediately. Um, so in treating the disease and, and treating it and identifying the disease it's probably more important than, than, you know, how stressful it is. Um, so I can't think of too many times if I thought a parasite was hurting the animal, I wouldn't address it. It just depends on how. 
Um, we had a, uh, a Russian tortoise come in that had worms in its lungs. Uh, and again, I could have gone in with, a, with an endoscope and cleaned out the worms. The owner didn't, didn't think it was necessary. She decided to euthanize that animal. Um, so some of it is not just what we can do. You know, it's what owners are willing to do. Um, right. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty complex. I think the bottom line is every, every parasite species would be different. Uh, if you have a venomous snake who has probably, you know, a parasite in the blood that's not going to hurt it, yeah, you just leave it alone because it's not worth handling that snake and it's not worth the stress of, of giving that snake medicine to something that's probably not bothering it. Um, so right. it comes down to the species and it comes down to the specific problem. The other thing that sometimes uh, we have to keep in mind is things like the toxicity of the parasite medicine. I don't think enough people realize that fenbendazole or Panicure it can be very, very toxic to a lot of reptiles. It's uh, known in several species, including some mammals, to suppress the uh, uh, bone marrow. Um, so there's a study with tortoises that five days of uh, panicure in a row can literally wipe out its bone marrow. And then you basically just kill that animal. Um, so ivermectin is known to, to, to get into the brain of some of these reptiles. You can't use it in turtles and, and uh, I think the indigo snake. I mean, there's a couple of specific species. Um, so, again, it comes down to knowing you're normal and, and your species. Wow. That's, that's I'd never heard panic ear being something that would affect the bone marrow. That's pretty hardcore. Yeah, um, yeah everybody thinks geez. it's safe because it's very safe in dogs. Um, but yeah. if you look at the dog and cat dosage, uh, it's 50 milligrams per, per kilo, and that's standard. Uh, a goat, yeah. you use only 5%, you know, or 5 wow. milligrams. So you're literally using in a goat, you know, a tenth of what you would use in a dog. So, you know, even species to species, mammal to mammal, there's these dramatic differences. So why should reptiles be any different? You know, obviously, yeah. a species python and a carpet python are... are, are more closely related, but a carpet python and a ball python aren't that closely related. So, you know, again, a lot of people think python, and there's huge differences even within python. So there may be drugs that are not safe for one species that's fine for another. So, again, it comes down to knowing that species. That's cool. I never thought um, of it that way. That's uh, quite a uh, an interesting look at it that makes you kind of <laughs> really take a second second look at guess what you're pumping into the snake yeah it, it kind of takes yeah. makes you wonder a little bit so wow um so we're in breeding season now or well, i should say laying season now here in uh, the northern hemisphere uh, and one of the things uh that i thought might be a good topic is egg binding um what 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 is do you do you have any thoughts on what is the uh, maybe some of the causes behind egg binding in pythons? So we know with a, with a lot of reptile species um, that they have the ability to basically know um, if the environment is correct. Um, pythons, I think, are going to be a little bit different. I think their cycles are a little bit more hardwired. Um, but uh, just to give you the example, we know that turtles, can hold on to their eggs sometimes for weeks and months before they'll actually lay them. So is that egg binding or is that just you didn't offer it a proper nest site? Um, you know, we think that they're able to sense the pH of the soil, the humidity content of the soil, 
um, you know, the temperature in, in, in the substrate. So when a python um, has trouble, you know, could it be as simple as you didn't offer a proper environment? Uh, I don't know if you guys made it to the Arboreal Seminar a couple of years ago. What was that, in Washington, right? Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I can. You know it was in Maryland? Yeah. Yeah, I think they were talking about, um, you know, how uh, a lot of the carpet pythons in their natural environment are actually, you know, not carrying that same humidity as something like a green tree python. So, you know, maybe using a little bit lower humidity might be more important. So, again, if those those conditions haven't been ironed out, um, probably the first thing I'm thinking about is environmental conditions. Um, You know, if that next box doesn't feel right, if it's not the right temperature, you know, she may be reluctant to go in that box and lay appropriately. Um, we're actually talking about a, a retained egg because uh, I think a lot of keepers confuse the follicular development that occurs. So reptiles have to make their eggs from scratch. So some mammals, uh, humans, I think are a good example. They're born with a certain number of eggs, and that's all they have. Snakes make their own eggs. So... Um, they're going to go through that follicular development. They're going to develop follicles. Then you actually have ovulation. So now those uh, follicles have uh, left the egg and gone into the shell gland. So now they're either going to get fertilized and develop a shell or are going to come out as a slug. So when we talk about egg binding, you know, one of the first things you're thinking about, well, is this follicular stasis? Did we have an animal develop follicles and they not ovulate? Um, so that's one condition. And then the other condition would be, are these fertile eggs that are stuck or are they slugs that that haven't been passed? Um, So, uh, uh, you know, is there, you know, 15 eggs in the nest box and one stuck in the snake? Um, So there's different definitions of that. Um, So I think it it, it really matters on on what we're talking about. I think that there's the potential for these snakes to get exhausted, um, you know, where they're just not physically fit enough to lay all the eggs. Uh, we talked already about the, the three-dimensional environment. Um, snakes don't have um, that strong uterine muscle like a mammal does. So they're relying on the muscles of their body, of the sides of their body, like their, the muscles around their rib cage, to squeeze that egg out. So if the snake has been in a two-dimensional environment and it's not physically fit, doesn't have the physical strength to push all those eggs out, it may just get stuck because it's exhausted. Uh, and that, you know, could wind up needing surgery or something like that to get it removed. Um, so, you know, that three-dimensional environment may have offered it for the last year, two years, whatever their cycle is going to be, of having, you know, exercise where those muscles are physically developed, and then that snake wouldn't have had that same problem. So I think it was in milk snakes, but um, there was a, a lecture presented a few years ago at the Reptile and Amphibian Conference of a, uh, I think it was a milk snake breeder, where he was using one male to about nine, ten females, and he had the whole rack system going, and he had about a 10% uh, uh, binding problem, uh, and the vet had recommended, if, well, if you're using the one male to the ten snakes, why don't you try to connect all the cages so they can go up and down all these different levels? Uh, and after that, his egg binding went down to less than 1%, just from exercise. Um, so I think that uh, as far as causes, uh, I'm sure there's nutritional issues. I'm sure there's husbandry issues. I'm sure, again, things like physical fitness can literally play into effect. Um, I think the difference between fertilized eggs and unfertilized eggs can be very, very important. Uh, I think we've all seen where it looks like half a clutch is fertile and one isn't. 
So as far as I'm concerned, it means the sperm made it into one uh, uh, oviduct or, or, or up into one of the shell glands and fertilized one side of the body. So maybe just the left ovarian uh, uh, eggs got, got fertilized, uh, but not the right side. So if you're getting half slugs and half uh, uh, fertilized eggs, um, then, uh, again, the, the unfertilized eggs, even though they're smaller, uh, I'm sure you've all seen it, they're kind of sticky. Um, so sometimes they'll, they'll get stuck more frequently, and that's causing more stress on that female. So, wow. So, uh, you know, again, I think each case is going to be kind of specific that way. What about uh, supplementation as far as snakes? Uh, I know this is kind of uh, off topic, but is it? Would it be? Well, I, I mean, I think it does pertain to the to the to the reproductive stuff, um, because again, we know that certain um, vitamins, certain uh, nutritional uh, um, um, support is going to be be really critical. Um, so I do try to vary the different uh, prey items. Um, so in my own house, I always have rats, mice, and chicks. Um, you know, if you can go through different species and things like that, that might actually help. I think there's going to be some differences uh, even, you know, if you are what you eat, then your food is what it eats. So, you know, you've got to sometimes talk to your rodent breeders about what they're feeding their, their rodents. Uh, so my rodent distributor uh, uses Missouri, um, which is one of the um, diets that's made for things like zoos. Um, so they have a couple of different veterinary nutritionists that work on making these diets appropriate for the individual species. So uh, um, we were looking at the differences between guinea pig food and, and rabbit food recently, uh, and uh, rabbits can get by on those 12% protein, but guinea pigs need closer to 15 to 17%. So, um, you know, again, is somebody just being cheap and using the rabbit pellet to feed, you know, their guinea pig? Um, so if the guinea pig is low on vitamin C and then the snake eats that, it's going to be low on vitamin C. So, you know, sometimes it gets boiled down as far as what those what those rodents are being fed. The only thing right now that I'm supplementing my snakes with uh, is a red palm oil. Uh, the company um, that makes it is uh, um, originally started off as an organic bird food company, and they make this organic uh, red palm oil that specifically is very high in omega-3 fatty acids uh, and uh, specifically very high in vitamin E. It turns out that um, vitamin E is one of those vitamins that gets destroyed if you use basically really hot water to defrost your rodents. So, uh, you know, use lukewarm water, even let them thaw out over time, um, and then heat them up before you feed them, you might be better off. Um, but um, I, again, think that that's one of those things that might be species-related. Um, I haven't seen it before, but I, I think I said earlier that I actually lost an Amazon uh, um, tree boa to uh, steatitis, and in the research that I've done, the best I can trace that back to was a vitamin E deficiency, um, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I'm now supplementing it. I have um, over probably right now a dozen adult Amazons, so for me, that, that was pretty important to do. Um, I think I've seen a difference in some of my other snakes. I think their body musculature looks pretty good. Um, when we talk about egg binding, um, vitamin E is going to be a pretty critical vitamin for uh, uh, the yolk. Uh, it's going to be pretty important to the muscles of the snake. So in other species, they call it white muscle disease um, because it affects the muscles. So, again, if those muscles uh, uh, aren't strong to begin with, then she may not lay her eggs uh, and get all those eggs out of her body. 
Um, so you know, the supplement, I think, does tie back into to reproduction because only the most physically fit snakes should be breeding. Um, so uh, nature sort of designed it that way. Um, so it's going to weed out the weak. And, um, you know, I think that's something to be considered that, again, you are what you eat, and the same thing for those eggs. You know, if mommy's not perfect, then the babies aren't going to be perfect either. So, um, you know, that goes back then to, to hatch rate and everything else as well. So, yeah, some supplements I think are probably a good idea. What I do with the um, red palm oil is uh, literally just use a feeding syringe uh, and either put it down the throat of the frozen rodent or put it up the rectum, and the snakes have no idea it's there. Um, so you could probably do something similar with a, with a you know, a multivitamin. Um, I don't think that's well documented. That's not really a research thing. That's not really a vet thing yet. Um, that's just from breeding snakes. Um, so, I, again, I use the red palm oil uh, periodically on vitamin dust. So uh, if I feed once a week, then probably it's every fourth to fifth meal probably gets vitamin dusted. Okay. Um, do you find that, uh, just curious on your thoughts on a female going into, say, the breeding season, uh, is it a good idea to have a little extra weight on that female to prepare for the breeding season? I think what a breeder calls weight and what I would call weight are probably different. Um, okay. You know, I, uh, I have uh, I don't have the the, the complete uh, carpet python, but I have um, you know the Greg Maxwell book on green tree pythons, and you know there were numbers thrown around like a thousand grams and all this other stuff. Um, and uh, I have a, a green tree python right now in my house that I can trace back a couple generations. And I remember when my fr- friend had bred, uh, I think it's the, the grandmother or the great-grandmother of that snake. Um, she was maybe 700 grams. Um, I think she was a three-year-old. It was kind of like stuck in between, um, you know, trying to give her an extra year. But uh, as you can clearly see that she had ovarian, um, um, some, some ovarian swelling. And uh, my friend had had a male that had stopped eating. So for me, I'm going to listen to nature. If she's cycling and he's ready, um, you know, they're telling us what to do. So I told them, I think you should put them together. I think you're going to wind up with problems if you don't. My worry would be that she'd go through the follicular development, then she'd ovulate, they wouldn't be fertile, then she'd be stuck with unfertile eggs and get bound. So I thought it would be better to get them fertilized. Even if it's a small clutch, it's still better to be fertilized and get out of her, uh, even if they didn't raise the babies, but just to have a healthy uh, delivery. Um, and it turns out she had 12 babies. They were perfect. They were, uh, um, I think, um, a little higher end on the spectrum gram-wise for, for his snakes that year. I think they were eight, nine grams. And some of the other clutches he had that were larger from larger snakes had smaller babies. Um, so they were really healthy babies. And I have the, uh, the great-great-grandchild to prove it. Um, so when you talk about extra weight, I think a lot of people go by the numbers. So if a six-foot snake weighs a 1,000 grams, is that healthy? I mean, that goes back to uh, is a five-foot-nine man at 200 pounds healthy? Well, is it, you know, Schwarzenegger and Stallone, you know, or is it Danny DeVito? So, you know, I mean, those are very, very big differences, but they might weigh the same. You know, you uh-huh. think right. about swings, and, and, and that's two totally different subjects, whether or not it's fat weight or muscle weight. So we know that uh, most reptiles uh, are going to um, – Start breeding when their muscle mass reaches a certain weight. Uh, if you guys have paid any attention to some of the stuff going on with the Burmese python, if you've ever seen any of the TV shows where they open up those females and you look at them, 
you would look at them from a distance and think that those were horribly underfed animals. They had wrinkles in their skin, they're long and lanky, but yet, you know, they have uh, 100 follicles inside of them and they're, and they're obviously reproducing in the wild. Um, so I have yet to see a, a, a captive bred snake look like a wild snake where you can't tell the difference usually just by looking. Um, you know, where the captive bred snakes are usually much fatter. So the weight question mark, you know, that concerns me a lot because I think pushing and feeding them heavy doesn't necessarily make it different. The science that I know for sure is actually what you did last year is more important than what you do this month. Um, so for cycling purposes, how they were fed the season before is more important than how you're feeding them now. Um, so if they were fed well a year ago, then they'll have a more successful clutch than if you power feed them for three months before the season. Mm-hmm. Really? Hmm. Okay. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I, th- um, I, think, I think most of that work is more on, um, like, temperate snakes, those snakes that are going to hibernate. So essentially, if you have a, a snake like a, like a rattlesnake, which is going to go into hibernation uh, and then come out and ovulate and then have its young, um, you know, she, she sometimes could be fertilized in the fall and then carry those sperm through the winter and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it may not directly apply to something like tropical snakes, but the theory certainly seems to pan out time and time again. So I, I think right. that that is one of those. Maybe we shouldn't compare, you know, tropical snakes to temperate snakes, but everything else seems so similar that I find it hard to, to differentiate the two. Right. Right. Okay. Um, what about, uh, I guess, uh, what is what is the best preventative, would you say, when it comes to egg binding? Or is it something that you already hit on, or is there other things that... Well, I, I think it's, it's everything we've talked about. Um, you know, okay. again, I think... With my own snakes using the three-dimensional enclosures uh, and getting them the proper body weight as far as body mass, because now in a larger enclosure, uh, you know, so like for my Amazon tree boas right now, one of my more favorite cages is a five-foot-long cage. And to see an Amazon boa uh, um, completely straight as an arrow, you know, hanging from branches, which to me looks more natural than one sitting on the ground, you know, obviously the muscle mass, the balance, the muscles that are required for that are going to be stronger. Um, and, um, you know, right now in, in that one particular cage, you know, I have one male that seems to, to breed two females a year, you know, and every year there's actually four females with them. So two females go one year and the other two go the following year. They seem to have that natural cycle no matter what I do. Um, and, um, you know, since I've gone to the, to, you know, like a leaner uh, prey item, so again, using the, um, a small or an adult mouse as opposed to a jumbo mouse so that there's less body fat on the actual prey item. Um, um, since doing that, enlarging my enclosures, you know, using the supplement um, with, a, with that size cage being five feet long, um, I use two 18-inch fluorescent tubes. One has ultraviolet and one doesn't because since the Amazons haven't been studied, I don't know if they need it. So I offer it, and if they want to sunbathe, they can sunbathe, but if they want to just hide in their hide box, then they don't have to come out. Um, so it at least gives them the option. So I think things like that have, um, you know, ended up giving me healthier, larger babies. Um, so as far as prevention, it still goes down to the health of mom and dad. Um, so all that preventative health that we've already talked about, you know, whether it's uh, parasites. I mean, again, to use the um, – uh, we talked about blood parasites a little bit, but some of these wild-caught snakes – 
they're getting um, bloodborne parasites because they're getting bitten by things like mosquitoes. So the transmission would be similar to something like malaria, uh, you know, or heartworm disease in the dog. Um, when I'm doing that research, I told you I was looking into this parasite um, um, with the help of the University of Florida to try to figure out whether or not that species of blood parasite is actually going to hurt that reptile. You know, everyone says it's not hurting the individual. It's not hurting the individual. But you guys are breeders. So I think that you guys sometimes need to look at something a little differently. Um, and something that I found in the research um, trying to figure out this parasite in this Amazon tree boa is that the, the snakes that do have um, blood-borne parasites, they're clinically normal. They're eating, they're drinking, they're gaining weight, they're reproducing. But their testicular size is smaller. They're 25% smaller testicles. So, again, if you're using that animal as a breeder, if you have a high-end snake that's, you know, worth the, uh, you know, I'll use the Amazon because that's what we were dealing with at the clinic that time. If you have a, a red Amazon that's worth $2,000 on the market and he produces three babies versus 12, that's pretty substantial. Um, but, uh, unfortunately, it's not economically important for most universities to figure that out. So I had to right. do my own research. I found the paper on this one kind of parasite and that it reduces ovarian and testicular size. So all of a sudden, my light bulbs went off, and I said, I have Amazon Gboa. That's pretty important for me to figure out whether or not that's going to affect my snake. You know, and will right. that, you know, $500, you know, snake then raise up and, and produce babies that could be more expensive or less expensive? So, you know, it, it, it's uh, physical fitness is, is a pretty broad topic. Uh, and avoiding the pitfalls of, you know, the mites and the respiratory infections and everything else eventually translates to a healthier captive snake. Um, and then that way it translates to a snake who can, you know, reproduce year after year for you. Right. Um, if you uh, again, I don't know if you, if you guys said you were at that arboreal uh, seminar, but the, um, the herpetologist who worked at the zoo with the, with the tree vipers, you know, was yeah. talking that these vipers were reproducing into 30-, 40-year-old snakes. Jeez. So how often do we have, you know, 25-year-old green tree pythons laying eggs? I, I don't know of any. Um, so, you know, again, how close are we doing it to, to correctly? Um, and just right. to get two, three clutches out of one snake, is that is that a legitimate goal? Should we not be thinking in, in terms of production for a decade or so? So, you know, I, I think that preventative medicine is just good husbandry. You know, keeping that snake as healthy as possible, looking at that snake as an individual and saying, what can I do to make that animal's life better? That's all going to translate to better breeding. Right. Absolutely. Um, one of the, uh, this has to do with egg binding as well, but, well, I guess just laying eggs in general. One of the things you see a lot, like on Facebook, especially this time of year, is that a female is due at a certain time, and uh, she goes maybe a week over. Uh, when when should you get nervous that the female's not laying that you might have a problem, or should you just let nature take its course? Well, you know, I think I think there's there's a couple of different ways to look at that. When you say let nature take its course, how many of us are really willing to let our snake die? Um, so yeah. that that you know that makes that question mark you know theoretical. Um, right. As far as you know specifics. Um, what worries me more is that if you do have an expected due date and the snake hasn't laid the eggs, there are hormonal changes within the snake's body that's going to essentially close what would be their equivalent to the cervix. So when that happens, you basically then are dealing with something like cesarean section. 
Um, what I found uh, uh, with, uh, you know, Morelia, again, I bred a green tree pythons, and last year bred the um, corporate pythons, um, is that, you know, if you follow the textbook, you know that, you know, there are these certain ranges between follicular development and ovulation, and then once they've ovulated, there's certain intervals between ovulation and egg laying. Um, if you're going, you know, three days past your expected date, you probably have reason to, to have concern. Um, knowing as much as I do about physiology and, and the stuff that I've looked into, you actually have a very, very small window hormonally um, to give them drugs to try to get them to lay those eggs. So I've tried to look at that question from my own purposes, for my own snakes, um, and things like oxytocin don't usually work in snakes. Um, we typically rely on uh, uh, prostaglandin F2-alpha, which is a drug you can get um, for things like cattle and, and horses um, because that can help in, induce a snake to, to actually uh, lay its eggs. Um, Vasitocin is another drug that, that, that um, you know, from a theoretical standpoint, seems to be good at that. But as of right now, that's all experimental. You can't. I actually have looked into it. I couldn't get vasitocin. So the only thing I could get was the F2-alpha. But if you don't give it within, uh, I think it's 48 to 72 hours of, of, of their delivery time, it's probably not going to work. And then at that wow. point, you, you're dealing really with surgery. So either, you know, I've heard stories of people uh, using a needle to aspirate the egg and to see if that will get it out. Um, I've done it uh, uh, endoscopically where when the cervix is still open, you can go in with a camera, see the egg, and then pull it out. Um, or, or you're just dealing with straightforward surgery. Cut open the side of the snake, get in there, remove the egg, sew it up. Um, uh, you know, something I always find amazing is that, um, you know, breeders will wait a week, two weeks, and then they bring it to me, and then, oh, well, I don't want surgery. Well, it's hmm. too late. You, you lost your window of opportunity. And I don't think that, uh, again, there's any hard, fast rules. I don't think this stuff has been ironed out. I can't say it's black and white because not every species has been studied. Um, but uh, for me, if, if you're expecting, you know, on a Monday and it's Thursday and nothing's happened, you either have one or two possibilities. Either she's not laying appropriately and she's something wrong, or you're wrong. You missed the date, you know, and, and that, I think, mm -hmm. is the toughest part. Uh, again, hearing you guys start off this morning, uh, I forget who it was, but one of you guys had that unexpected clutch. So, you know, any time you think you have something figured out, nature's going to gonna shove you back in the ground and say start over because <laughs> yeah. you don't know everything, and, and we're not going to get it right. Um, so, it, you know, that part of the discussion is difficult because, you know, if everything's exactly perfectly right, then a snake who's five days late is five days late. That's, that's a problem. But if you were wrong and your numbers were wrong, then it could be totally normal. Uh, and it's happened to me before with my own personal snakes. I, I've gone in um, on a doomeral boa that I thought just had slugs, and she'd only had slugs since I had her. She had two babies that were deformed. I'm like, this snake is a genetic nightmare. I'm just going to spay the snake and remove her ovaries and just keep this animal as a pet. Uh, and sure enough, when I went in there, it was a healthy baby. So, uh, um, you know, it wasn't something I had checked her with an ultrasound. I just didn't see it. Uh, and so, you know, here I was because I had waited. And in the long run, again, I think she was producing, you know, abnormal babies. I think I still did the right thing. But at the time, my heart sunk when I saw a baby in there. Um, mm. So, you know, that, that, that sucked. But in the long run, it was the right decision. So, uh, again, is there a perfect time? I doubt it. 
Um, you know, if we have a few eggs laid and there's some eggs inside her, if they're not out within 24 to 48 hours, I think you got a problem. Um, I read in the books all the time where, where other vets that I know have gone in, they've had eggs, they've cut them out surgically, and then they still incubated them and they passed. Um, so there is still that possibility of literally doing like a cesarean and then still having a healthy baby out of it. Um, I haven't had any success. Um, I, I know of uh, reports where people take um, hip-by-car snapping turtle and then raise the eggs and they'll hatch. Um, you know, they'll take them out of the dead female and they'll hatch. And uh, I haven't been that lucky, but, you know, it can happen. So it's still worth trying and then preserving that egg. Well, hmm. I think especially if you guys have a high-end, you know, $1,000-plus snake, you know, if the surgery costs $1,000 and you save that one egg and you save the female, and in the long run, you probably still make money. True. Um, and that's something that I've seen, I think, is a bit of a misconception, too. Just because you surgically go in and remove that one egg, that doesn't mean she won't lay eggs next year. Um, I remember early, early on in my career, my, my friend was a corn snake breeder, and I'm talking my first year or two out of school, and he uh, he was like, no, all the breeders say don't cut them out. She'll never have eggs again, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, dude, it comes down to the snake. I mean, do you want me to save the snake's life or the egg's more important to you? He said, no, you're right. The female's more important. So we went in surgically. I removed the eggs. I had to make two separate incisions, uh, one for each side uh, to remove all the eggs that she had. Um, she uh, uh, And, again, this is a corn snake, so they're obviously pretty tough snakes. Um, she um, healed completely that year. The following year, she double-clutched with 100% fertility. Um, so, you know, again, I think surgical techniques, surgical uh, anesthesia these days for reptiles is getting far better than what they used to be. Um, so I, you know, as a vet, obviously I'm going uh, I'm, I'm to be pro-vet on those situations. Um, but, but mm-hmm. you know, just because you had to go in surgically doesn't mean it's the end of that snake. Um, so, you know, if, uh, if you sew that uterus up well and you keep that surgery clean, there's a very good chance you can still breathe. That's good to hear. <clears throat> yeah, um, not, not to be all to end all. I know that a lot of people were always worried that if there was anesthesia for your snake, it was pretty much like kiss it goodbye. Um, you had like a 50% chance of it even coming out. So at least that was the rumor. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock on wood really, really fast because uh, okay. I don't know how many surgeries. Have we done 100 reptile surgeries this year? Probably a hundred yeah. reptile surgeries this year. I've not lost one of them. Um, wow. I had um, uh, a couple of uh, Val Canadians come from my friend's rescue, uh, and um, I just wasn't prepared at the time to, to spay the females, so I let them breed. I ended up hatching the eggs. I'd never done it before, so I wanted to experience chameleon, you know, egg rearing because they have to go through these 90-degree uh, temperatures at daytime and down to into the 60s at night. So I was playing around with a wine cooler and, a, and an incubator, and, you know, it was almost like a, a mental challenge for me. So I ended up hatching out the eggs, and we started spaying those females. And uh, we spayed a couple before they've laid eggs. We're going to spay a couple while they have the ovules, while they have the eggs, um, to see, you know, if there's any benefit to, to one method over another. Um, and the first two females that I spayed, which has gone on two, three months ago, um, I think the first female we did ate within 24 hours. Uh, the second female was eating, I think, within 48 hours. Neither female lost any weight more than, than what we removed from them. So one of the females had um, follicles developed. So, I mean, they were, you know, 20, 30 grams in follicles. So a 100-gram lizard all of a sudden became, you know, 80 grams. So 
But other than that, they didn't actually lose any weight from the surgery, and they were eating in 48 hours. Um, uh-huh. We had a king snake a few years ago that had eggs stuck in it for like three, four months, hadn't eaten, was skin and bone. When it was presented to me from my friend's rescue, it was, here's this male snake that's not eating, and I picked it up and said, well, it's a female full of eggs. Well, once we remove the eggs, you know, we're not going to save this animal. Um, and they at first didn't believe me, so I, I uh, emailed them the x-rays of the eggs, and they said, okay, cut them out, uh, and she ate within a week. So four months of not eating, falling apart, nearly dead, I removed the eggs and the, and the uterus, and she was fine. Um, so, uh, you know, I think when it comes to reptile medicine, I think it's like anything else. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that um, I think was in, uh, in your outline um, was, you know, how to find a reptile vet. Um, so I've belonged since, uh, since the day I graduated to uh, the ARAV, which is the Association for Reptile and Veterinarian Veterinarians. And on their website, it's ARAV.org, right? So it's ARAV.org has a list mm-hmm. of their members uh, in every state. So, uh, you know, they have a find a vet page. Um, so not only are they seeing reptiles, but they care enough to be part of the association. Um, so obviously not all of them to go to the, you know, can go to the conference every year, but at least they're getting the journal articles. Um, you know, at least they're, they're doing their studies. Um, so, you know, your average dog and cat vet may not be as good, you know, or have the experience level that I have. Um, but, you know, half of my experience comes from my own pet. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it is something that, that I've worked on. Um, I recently, uh, in 2011, was able to um, kind of hitch a ride on uh, the University of Georgia's project on castrating turtles. Um, so um, they had tried uh, in previous years to uh, castrate some turtles um, for uh, some scientific purposes, you know, what, what the effects would be of castration and whether or not those babies would be fertile and, and things like that. Um, so um, the previous uh, pilot study they did, uh, I think almost all their turtles died. Uh, and what? because it was a university study, they went ahead and they did necropsies. And every single one of those animals that died was sick. They had parasites, they had salmonella, they had liver abscesses. They all had some sort of disease. So, again, when we're talking about a healthy reproductive animal who's been in good care, I think the expected outcome is going to be positive. But when you get a a red-eared slider shipped in from a wholesaler and there's been no quarantine, there's been been no health status or anything else, I think your outcome is going to be very, very different. So when we got involved, I got involved specifically because I told them, I, I have a friend who does rescue, we have hundreds of red-eared sliders. I said, does it pay for me to castrate a couple and, and give you guys the data? And uh, the, the, one of the guys from, from the University of Georgia turns around and says, uh, you know, it would be better, and if you want, why don't you bring them down to Georgia and you'll do the study with us? So I got to sit uh, with Stephen Divers, who's the editor of the new, uh, uh, he's the co-editor with Doug Mater. Uh, and do this study with him and Charlie Innes, who's the director of medicine at the New England Aquarium. And we sat and castrated 25 male turtles. All 25 survived. The only complication was from the most inexperienced surgeon. So uh, uh, myself, Stephen Divers, and Charlie have all had, um, you know, experience with reptile surgery. All of our cases did great. Um, The one complication we had recovered completely. Um, but because those animals came from the rescue, I had kept them in my care for 90 days minimum before we did the surgery. 
So I mm-hmm. made sure they were healthy before we did anything. So we all we had the deworming and the pneumonias and everything else taken care of. So, you know, again, I think it shows you the difference between the same species, you know, a year before using the same medicine, the same techniques, and they had a horrible, horrible success rate. But then the following year, we had basically 100% success with surgery uh, and uh, and survival rates, you know, going on years now. Um, but uh, what was the difference? It was starting off with a healthy animal. So, you know, these horror stories of reptiles not surviving anesthesia, those are sick animals that were dying. Um, one of the things I always tell people about reptiles is if you brought your animal into my clinic and they haven't been eating for six months, they've been dying for six months. Mm-hmm. So don't expect me to give it a shot of Batril and it's going to survive. You know, he's going to get that shot. He's going to go home and die. And who gets blamed? I get blamed. But for the last six months, that animal's been dying. It, and, it, you know, you think about these turtles and stuff from the Galapagos that went years without eating, you know, with the voyage of the beagle and stuff like that, you know, and they survive. So reptiles are survivors. They're going to hide their disease. You're not going to know it's there half the time. Um, and then, you know, when something goes wrong, get it autopsy because we need to know why. Why did that animal die? And if you find out that it was in kidney failure or had a parasite or had, you know, heart disease, well, there's your answer. It's not that the surgery mm-hmm. killed it. It's something else did. So, you know, I hear those things all the time. And, again, you know, you got a snake. It, it, it's got, you know, five eggs stuck inside of it. It laid ten, and it's three weeks later. Who killed that snake? It wasn't me. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, I think that's too little too late. And, and that is where I think reptile medicine sometimes gets its bad rap. Um, you know, uh, you know, an example from this year um, we locally just started our own reptile show. So now there's a, a York Reptile and Pet Expo. The, the, uh, it only started last year. Um, we had a booth. Someone saw our card, whatever. They bought a turtle. It, they couldn't get it to eat within the first week or two. They brought it to me. Uh, she literally came to me, and this was one of the best clients ever, said, I put a bank account aside for my pets. I have $1,000 in this turtle's bank account. So... Try to do the best you can for that money. So we started our blood work. That turtle had uh, elevated um, uh, uric acid, which would be consistent with kidney failure. I said, it's very high. doesn't look good. I said, but if my, you want my honest opinion? I said, the best way to know whether or not this is fatal and whether or not we can help your turtle is to do a kidney biopsy. And she said, is it in my budget? I said, yeah. It's going to cost you about four or 500 bucks. She said, do it. And then we talked about if it, uh, you know, if everything looks okay visually, let's put a feeding tube in so now we can medicate this turtle because turtles are really hard to pull their head out of their shell and then give them medicine. But we didn't mm-hmm. want to rely on injections and stuff, so we put a feeding tube in. Uh, we got the biopsy back, and the biopsy came back as a mild kidney inflammation. So we treated it with inflammation, you know, anti-inflammatory fluids and put him on an antibiotic, and he made 100% recovery. So if I had only done the blood work, you know, he wouldn't have made it. But because I did the biopsy and we figured out that it was only a mild problem, we treated him and he got better. So, again, wow. here was a sick turtle. Technically, my blood work was in kidney failure. Not only made it through surgery but survived and then got better. And I just saw him for his one-year checkup and he's totally normal. So they get wow. a bad rap. But there is good medicine out there. Um, so it does take sometimes a little effort to find the right vet for you guys. But, uh, you know, there are people out there. Yeah, awesome. yeah. the biggest thing, I think, again, is you can't wait. 
you know, if you think there's a problem, you guys know your animals. There probably is a problem. You know, the question is, we need to find out how severe that problem. But uh, with the modern technologies now, you know, with things like endoscopy, um, it's amazing what can be done through a very small incision. Um, we had um, what was that? Uh, emerald. We had an emerald tree ball we removed the tumor on, and when we took out the stitches, the client was like losing his mind. He's like, "There's not even a scar," and uh, they can heal amazing. So you know, the wow. sooner you get some stuff addressed, the better. Yeah. Oh yeah, and that's that's another point. Uh, like I said, my girlfriend's my practice manager, so she's cheerleading me right now. Um, <laughs> one of the um, one of the biggest mistakes I think reptile keepers make. Just try to mm-hmm. run the vet once their animal's sick. If I knew you and I know your collection, think about how many dogs, cats, birds, rabbits, and whatever come into the animal clinic because they were just bought. That's what right. we call a post-purchase exam. When I graduated vet school, uh, when birds were as popular before the recession, uh, um, you it was automatic. You did blood work. You checked them for chlamydia. You checked them for polyoma. Uh, you did a fecal sample for parasites. You did a fecal gram stain for gram-negative bacteria. Uh, and that was normal. And a post-purchase exam was three, 400 bucks, and nobody points an eye at that. But uh, how many people do I see three days after a reptile show? None. Mm. And, yeah. and we have Hamburg an hour and a half away from us. So if you could yeah. make it to Hamburg, you could theoretically make it to my hospital. You know, we make it there in an hour and ten minutes every Saturday after after work. So, uh, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And, um, you know, again, having that relationship, you know, what we call it is a uh, client-patient veterinarian um, relationship. So uh, legally, I can't prescribe anything to you. I can't recommend anything to you unless I've done a physical exam on that animal. So you can have 100 snakes. I can see 99 of them. But if it's the one snake I haven't seen, I can't prescribe you a medicine. So, you know, legally speaking, and if I'm going to protect my license and do this for the next 30 years, that's more important to me than your snake. So you can ask me for baseball all you want. I'm not giving it. Because unless I've proven it's a bacterial infection, I'm not giving an antibiotic. Um, So, you know, those things need to be discussed long before um, because that makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. With people giving baseball out, like, you know, I, I hear that a lot as well. Is that something that they could build up a, uh, a resi- you know, a resistance Yeah, absolutely. To? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was in vet school, so we're going 20 years ago, um, it was already told in in the uh, internal medicine class that when Batril came out, when enterofloxacin as a drug came out, its original drug label was for urinary tract infections in dogs. A hundred percent of E. coli at the time were susceptible to Batril. When I was in vet school, you already had a 50% resistance rate in dogs for urinary tract infection. So, you know, again, we talked already about the, uh, the culture sensitivity. So what you're specifically doing is swabbing that bacteria so you, you take the spit up, you know, from the lungs, you culture that, just like strep throat as a kid, they smear that on a Petri dish. Then you see a bacteria grow. Once they grow, they separate that out again, and then they learn out what killed it. So they take that bacterial isolate, they smear it on a new Petri dish, 
and then they take these little antibiotic dips and put it in the petri dish. And what we do to determine resistance and, and, and uh, um, susceptibility is to see if the bacteria grow around the antibiotic disc. So you actually measure the distance of the nearest growth to these discs, and that determines whether or not it's resistant. Um, when it comes to basal specifically, I would say that right now, I would say probably 40% of the bacteria we see are probably resistant to batrol. The other thing that uh, um, a lot of exotic animal practitioners joke about, we call it batrol deficiency, like we make fun of normal people. Um, hmm. So um, uh, one of the biggest mistakes is that um, the batrol injectable has only been approved for a single injection. You're not supposed to give that multiple injections. And the reason for that is that batrol has a pH of 11.4. It's basically like injecting battery acid into your snake. So I'm sure you've all read the stuff about sterile abscesses and skin sloughing and all that other stuff. Um, right. And then, um, you know, I've had people tell me, oh, well, I just dilute it in saline and then give it. So you realize that you are modifying the way the drug is meant to be given so that you have less complications. Well, how do you know it still works? Right? I mean, those things aren't studied. Is it meant to be diluted? Sure. If it was meant to be diluted, that's what the company would have on its label. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, you talk about, uh, like, the stress of treating a parasite. What about the stress of injecting batrol? You just injected battery acid. You don't think that snake hurts for the next three days? You know, I don't yeah. know if you guys have had the flu shot recently, but people, you know, complain for over a week that they got a little microscopic, you know, tuberculin syringe-sized needle injected into them. So, uh, you know, I think that um, those kinds of things make a big difference. So there's definitely a ton of resistance. Um, uh, the, the newer drug that a lot of people were falling in love with is ceftazidine. So for the last 5, 10 years, you know, most of the exotic practitioners have started to use that. You don't get the uh, injection site pain or necrosis from it the way you do with Batril, and it's thought to hit some of the anaerobic bacteria. Um, but they just published a journal article that because of the trends in popularity, there's actually more resistance to cefazidine now than there is to batrol. Um, no, so, Jesus. You know, I think based on uh, pseudomonas, I think is what they looked at in that study. Um, so, yeah, your cultural sensitivity tells you everything. You know, and all these people using batrol, yeah, like I said, reptiles already are known to carry some of the most resistant bacteria in nature. Um, so, you know, to be adding basal to that list, yeah, that's a big problem. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. So, with all this, is there anything that can be done preventatively? I know we talked about, like, buy visits where if somebody buys a snake, maybe take it to the vet for a wellness check, yeah, but is there anything else? Well, you know, in, a, in our specific clinic, if you have a young animal, a young reptile, I'm going to recommend that you try to get two to three visits in that first year. Um, I haven't kept every reptile out there, but I'm coming pretty close. Um, you know, I've had, uh, you know, in my hands on at least, you know, half a dozen different crocodilians. You know, I've had some dozens of species of venomous snakes. Um, I've bred corn snakes. I've bred boa constrictors. I've bred green tree python. I've bred garter snakes. Um, you know, I've raised tons and tons of these things. I have friends that have bred bearded dragons and veiled chameleons and, uh, uh, you know, monitor lizards. So I know what their growth rates are. So half the time I think we could be cutting these things short, you know, and catching these things earlier, especially with these babies, um, you know, by, by getting those, all those husbandry issues ironed out in the first year. 
uh, we're in the middle of a two-week period where every probably third day I'm seeing a valve chameleon come in with vitamin A deficiency. Every one of those lizards is nine months to a year old. Every one of them has crusty eyes. None of them are using vitamin supplements that have vitamin A in it. So every one of those cases would have been prevented. So I think, again, hooking up and developing that, that vet-patient-client relationship is, is huge. Um, when you're dealing with a wild-caught snake, probably getting you know, three fecals to the vet first year. Um, one fecal is not going to be diagnostic. Um, so three fecals separated probably by at least a month. Um, you know, it, it's going to be a minimum if you talk to pathologists. Um, you know, uh, yearly visits for, to the average pet snake. Um, there's a, a lot of um, breeders um, from some of my friends um, that uh, literally do pre-hibernation and pre-breeding exams. Um, they do blood work. They check blood counts. Um, you know, they, they check weights. They do x-rays, look for ovarian follicles and retain, you know, follicles and, and just make a better, you know, uh, database for what's normal in, in their animals. Um, you know, if you have an unusual species, uh, even though I've, I've actually handled and, and done physical exams on uh, a bull and python, it doesn't mean I know what the normal blood count is. So, you know, the level of knowledge that can be attained from your vet experiencing just doing that physical exam every year, then when you actually need them to help you, they're going to know better. Um, you know, and that's something that, you know, a dog and a cat goes every year. We have statistics that show that dogs and cats who go to the vet on a yearly basis live two to three years longer than ones who don't. Even if they're not vaccinated, even if they don't do heartworm, it's more important to get the physical exam done. So from a preventative maintenance at home, it's keeping your husbandry as good as possible. As far as the veterinary relationship, it's yearly physical exams. Hello? Hello? Uh, I didn't know if you guys were still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're still here. Um, yeah. I don't know. If so again, at home, it, it's the proper husbandry, and then you know, as far as a, a vet client patient relationship, if I don't do a physical exam within 365 days, I can't prescribe medicine. So Gee. having that relationship established is the key to everything. All right. Wow. Makes sense. <clears throat> and I guess it would be like uh, again, it's kind of like a reversal where people are willing to do it for dogs, cats, and everything else, why not with your reptiles? And, and so. again, if you put things in perspective, a dog lives on average 13 years. I think cats are 14, 15, but the longest-lived ball python went over 50. Yeah. So, you know, certainly for our pet animals, you know, they're living longer. They're going to need more in the course of their lifetime. So, And if you True. get a you know, $50 exam once a year, you know, what's it worth at the end? Mm-hmm. And like I said, I think most of the people, especially the people who are just starting out in the business, you know, I tell them to buy a $100, you know, heat panel, and then the guy at the pet store says, no, just use an incandescent light bulb. Incandescent yeah. put off the, the specific radiant, you know, uh, um, infrared wavelength that stimulates digestion. I don't think so. So, again, mm-hmm. knowledge, you know, even husbandry knowledge that you could probably build you know, uh, uh, by working with your vet, you know, it would be huge. True. So if somebody wanted to get in touch with you or uh, to um, bring about your, uh, to bring a patient into your um, 
practice, right. how would they go about doing that? Well, you know, obviously they bring it into practice. I mean, the simple explanation, obviously, call the clinic, right. make an appointment. Um, but, um, you know, we have a Facebook page. We, we accept the emails. Um, the, the bottom line is, you know, if we don't have the appointment, you can send me all the pictures in the world. I can't help you. Because, again, mm-hmm. if we don't have a client-patient relationship legally, I can't even make the recommendation. So, technically, if I even told you to change your light bulbs, you know, you can, it, that could be considered a veterinary prescription, and I would be liable without doing the physical exam. So, uh, you know, the easiest thing to do is to call the, the clinic number. Uh, it's 717-741-1320. Um, and uh, and make the appointment. I mean that that that's, that's the honest to God answer there. Um, because like I said, I mean I've had people call me up and ask me the dosage for metronidazole, and uh, I'll say to them, I said, well, what are you treating? Is it a secondary bacterial infection? Do you have a protozoa? You know, are you using it as part of an antifungal treatment? And they go, what the hell are you talking about? And I said, exactly. Give me the answer so I can look at it. So you know. Wow. Um, so the bottom line is. Like I said, use ARAV.org. That's for the uh, um, Association for Reptile and Amphibian Veterinarians. Um, so on ARAV.org, they have uh, the find a vet. So obviously, if it's not me, it needs to be somebody else. Um, we're on that page, so you know our information is on the ARAV website. Um, so in Pennsylvania, I think there's like a half a dozen or more people. I think we're towards the bottom. Um, I think it's by alphabet. Yeah, I'm third from the bottom. Um, so, um, you know, we're in uh, York, Pennsylvania. Um, and um, for most people, even uh, from Maryland, but Baltimore is only an hour away. Harrisburg is uh, 25 minutes. Philly is about an hour and 45 minutes. Um, so uh, I still have clients uh, that are my clients from New York City um, that, I, that uh, will bring me animals. Um, I've actually met them at places like Hamburg because they know I'm going to be there. Uh, and they'll drop their animals off to me at Hamburg. I'll bring them to my clinic. This way I can do a physical exam on them and develop that relationship and uh, and continue that care. Awesome. That's great. So, That's great. Well, I'm glad that you're uh, in Pennsylvania because <laughs> <laughs> if I ever want to head out that way, and Owen, you're not even that far from there, right? No, I'm closer than you are. So. <laughs> yeah. That's good. To well, know. we uh, we appreciate the support. I mean, the, the only way that I can do what I want to do is to get reptile people in my clinic. Um, right. You know, I can keep all the animals at home I want, but uh, luckily I don't have to do surgery too often on my animals. Um, but, hmm. um, you know, it's something that uh, even, again, I told you my, my girlfriend's my practice manager. Um, she's a licensed veterinary technician looking into getting uh, her board specialty eventually with exotic animals. Um, so, you know, again, we've invested so much in reptile medicine between the two of us um, that uh, she's actually considered one of the co-authors for that castration study. Um, so I guarantee there's not too many people's, uh, you know, nurses that are published right along with them, uh, you know, in the textbooks. Um, so, um, you know, we do try, and we try pretty hard um, to, to be good at this. And uh, the only way we're ever going to stay good at it is to see the animals. You know, I see, yeah. you know, five dogs a day for 15 years, you know, working a five-hour week. You know, it's it's really hard to, to compete with that in the reptile world. You know, I can only do my own animals exams, you know, so many times. So, yeah, every, every patient counts. Well, 
uh, yeah, we'll we'll uh, you know support you any way we can. And uh, I think, luckily, I don't know I don't... about you, Owen. <laughs> I well, learned a lot tonight. <laughs> yeah. No? Luckily, I don't have anything sick right now, so uh, I can't bring anything to you. But you know. Yeah. Uh, he does be driving. Sometimes we got to see the healthy ones too. True, true. Uh, maybe I'll bring a rough scale. You can poke at him for a while. Um, <laughs> but the uh, uh, it does beat driving an hour and forty five minutes to my old reptile vet down near Philly. So uh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, uh, we appreciate you uh, coming on and uh, spending your time with us and, uh, you know, educating us on uh, various topics. Um, Welcome back anytime, and uh, we'll be sure to uh, pass along all your info and uh, can't say thank you enough, you know. No problem. It's my pleasure. I had fun. All right. Awesome. All right, guys. All right. Have a good night. You're good night, Doc. Yeah. Right. That was very enlightening. Very, We're uh, all doing it wrong. That's basically <laughs> whatever it. No, I, no, it was very enlightening, and it's very much the whole like. I I, I wish we were all, you know, more aware of the things that can happen and can twist and contort and can hurt our stuff it's like you know i i set up a quarantine cage in or quarantine cage in the rack uh up in my office in my bed in, in my new house and it's like uh-huh. i almost want to make a quarantine rack because every once in a while you get pairs or trios of animals and technically everybody should go up there for 30 days at least and that's if you get it from a source that you you know know i mean it's like if you were to send me an animal, I know that your guys are healthy to the best of your knowledge. And it's like, I, and, and I should be able to trust those other animals in there. But honest to God, you know, I, I shouldn't. It's like, I, 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 even knowing the people, um, I think yeah. can, can lead to trouble because I couldn't tell I mean, I, I'm not saying, you know what I mean? What if there's some kind of virus that... That you don't know about. That yeah, may have I mean, snuck its way in from the last show and it has a dormancy of certain number of days. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it does put the fear of God in you. And it is something scary because we do put a lot of time and effort into our animals. But it's like, it, it's almost like you got to set these quarantine rules and you got to set these vet rules and you can't break them not for anybody. And... That's what, and that's what I, if, some, if I were to take away something from this episode, that would be it, is that, you know, you never do know, and viruses and bacteria can be tricky things, and basically trust nobody. Basically, it's just, you know, don't trust anything at face value. Maybe not don't trust anybody. Don't trust animals at face value, because they're very good at hiding illness. And it can be scary. Can you, can you imagine a virus ripping through your collection and taking out half your things? Ooh. <laughs> I mean, <No. laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure I'd find you like in your own shower trying to drown yourself with your clothes on. I mean, like you know, that's that. I mean, it, so it's like you have to put forward that you have to take that extra effort, and 
I hate to say it, but it goes back to what you've been preaching about for about four or five years now, three years. How long have we been doing this? To being a student of the serpent. Serpent. And yes. yeah. <laughs> and, and and knowing yeah. what the hell's going on with your animals. You're you're gonna be the first person to know that it's not acting right. You know, you know the difference between it's not eating because it's in shed versus it's not eating because it doesn't feel like eating. It doesn't want to eat because it doesn't feel well. And yeah. You know, you know what to do then. And, of course, it's the next step is to be a responsible person. You know, if you have illness or a sick animal, I'm not saying you have to go on Facebook and present yourself to the firing squads that will be waiting for you there, but don't bring it to a show. Don't send it to somebody. Be honest. Be up front. You know, I've had several times where I had one time where I had a trio of womas. Perfectly healthy animals. The male, two days before he was about to go, wheezes at me. And I'm like, oh, hell no. So I ended up keeping those three animals for an extra two months, paying for a vet visit for all three of them, medication for all three, until they were perfectly healthy and eating before I sent them to my customer. No additional charge for the guy. Just told them, hey, they're sick. They're the boy's sick. He's not, I don't know what's going on. Take him to the vet tomorrow. Um, hold them off on shipping. If you want your money back, you can send it back to you now. If you want the animals, you just got to wait till everybody's healthy. He waited. He got the womas. Everything was fine. He was ecstatic that I actually took the time to, you know, take it to the vet, make sure everything was good before I sent it to him. And that's just being attentive. Because imagine how I would have felt if I had sent that thing out and then, like, his entire collection does because his boy, Woma. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. This is why I never understand why people send, like, I opened up the box and it was like pus was running from its face. It's like, well, did the guy who packed it look at it? It's like, <laughs> like who yeah. looked at that and goes, perfect. That's exactly how they should look. And then, you know, it's it's one of those things that perplexes me about our industry. But I digress. Yeah, it's, it's definitely... Um food for thought, that's for sure. Uh, there's, uh, <laughs> Amazon tree growers aren't supposed to be able to close their mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're for, that's how, how they evolved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, I do like the, the idea that you brought up about uh, doing your research on the species. Uh, yes. That's why I think um, it's uh, imperative that uh, us as, you know, well, I'll just say carpet pythons, but, uh, you know, educate future peak customers about uh, these species and why it's, uh, you know, important to learn the natural history and uh, uh, of what's going on with the animal and where it came mm-hmm. from and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you know how, how does it function in the wild? Et cetera. Mm. I've often thought about the fact. I also thought it was interesting that he brought up the uh, the whole uh, varying the diet. Um, yeah. I, I I think I think I might have heard it somewhere on. I think it was Reptile Radio, and it was Derek Roddy, and he had maybe said something. You know, like if you ate, you know, cheeseburgers for the rest of your life. Uh, you know, you'd survive, but would you be healthy? 
you know, because yeah. he was talking about black black-headed pythons and right, and he some gives of the them things fish and... into. Yeah. yeah, but uh, you know, it just it kind of makes you think. Like, I know that uh, pythons are opportunistic, so they're going to kind of not really be picky with what's coming in front of them. But you know, nature has a way of working that kind of thing out. You know what I mean? Right. So I mean. Uh, and I also like the fact that he brought up is that, and something that I keep coming into is that before you even get a reptile, shouldn't you know where your vet is? Like, shouldn't you know where a reptile vet is? There's been several times where um, a, a customer or not even a customer, just a would-be reptile person has approached me about an illness striking their animal. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, uh, what have you tried? Tried this, tried this, tried this. And has it worked? No. Okay. Uh, I hate to break it to you, but it's vet time. Take it to the vet. Check it out. Um, where's the vet? I'm like, what do you mean, where's the vet? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, don't you have one? Uh, no. Where are you? Uh, I live in such and such place. I'm like, well, my guy is here. This is my vet, and then this is my secondary vet. Um, I use this one when that one's out of town, if ever that has happened. Um, and it's happened once or twice, but it's like, um, well, that, geez, that's like three hours away. So there has to be one closer to you. Well, who would you recommend? I don't know. Ask Google. It's like, you know, it, how you don't take the extra steps to know if this happens, this is the person I'm going to, um, is beyond me, but. Yeah. Not here, not there. Again, it's just a a lot to think about, a lot to uh, to digest. Now, now that we scared the entire audience shitless, yeah. yeah, Now we scared the entire audience shitless, and they probably are bleaching their cages right now and checking every (laughs) single animal. Like you, one one of my um, like one of one of my carpets is going to be like you know I don't know like bump its head against something tomorrow and make some noise and be like, oh my God, what's happening to you? So it's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to yeah. see Flex of Dirt and be like, no, my <laughs> squeak out. So uh, That's great. Um, so yeah, uh, let's see. Um, I guess we'll just... Uh, I don't think, uh, for some reason, I think there's something that else that we were supposed to hit on, but uh, uh, I'm just going to go with it. Anyway. Yeah, we're just going to uh, roll with it. <laughs> <laughs> next week, we have uh, Tim Tindall is coming on, and we're going to be talking about England Carpet Python. Uh, Tim is uh, probably, uh, hopefully, he's going to have a clutch this year. Uh, I think we can go for him. Uh, maybe even two. Um, he has a fabulous collection of inland carpets and is very passionate about that species, subspecies, I guess I should say, um, in particular. Um, and I couldn't think of a better person to uh, discuss uh, that species, subspecies, however you want to look at it, uh, with. Uh, he, he definitely uh, knows his stuff when it comes to uh Inland carpet python. So, uh, I don't have inlands yet, so this could be a dangerous show for me. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's true. Usually after the episode uh, that of the species that you don't have, somehow you wind up with the species two days Shut after. Shut up. How about that? <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. I'm just going to say that uh, Nick Mutton has inland carpet pythons. Tell him. Put Stop it. Dick. Now you were talking about a different project at one point. I was talking about a different project, and I will uh, get to that at some point. Inland. Ooh, I know what I wanted to say. I know what I wanted to what? say. Did you see that uh, our good friend Wayne Larks down there in Australia produced a moon glow? Ooh. Moon glow it's carpet. pretty. Yeah. So basically we're looking at a hypo, albino, and exantic. A combination of everybody's bucket shots. Because that's what everybody does. So yeah, uh, very cool. I- I'm curious of what it's going to look like as an adult. Uh, I'm curious what's it going to look like with some more, you know, g- give me give me some more generations of exanic. Give me some more generations of car- super caramel and uh, really bump up the color and give me some moon glows and ghosts and sun glows after all that stuff, and then we'll be cooking with gas. So. Oh yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. fun. you know, selective breeding right there. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. So yeah, so we have uh, next week we have Tim, um, and uh, I'm not sure what we have lined up after that. We'll probably be going into uh, a pre-carpet fest show at some point there. Um, no. And uh, you know. Um, if there's a uh, a topic that uh, maybe you want us to have uh, Dr. Uh, Feinstein on again, um, let us know and, and I get in touch with him and maybe he can come back on in, uh, in a couple Yeah, days. he could be our official radio show vet. It's awesome. <laughs> so. Yeah, just to, just to talk on various subjects. Obviously, like you said, he can't diagnose uh, you know, without seeing the animal, but um, yeah. So nobody send us pictures of animals or anything like that. I mean, he kind of seems yeah. like a guy who would lose his mind if somebody's like, "This animal that I've had here for you know three weeks is breathing with its mouth open. Can you prescribe me something for it?" He's, I, you know, I hate it when people post that up on the Facebook and be like, "What's wrong with him?" And I'm like, "I don't know. Take him to a vet." <laughs> take him to a doctor. Why are you yeah, here? Right. So it's like, you know, I I imagine that that would just be maddening. To, it was maddening to me. I can't imagine what it is to him. So. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to run down our list here, and then we're going to get the heck out. So uh, Morelia Python Radio, we have several things for that. First, our website, uh, pretty much for everything Morelia-related. That's where you want to go to check out. Uh, it's uh, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Uh, if you have a question or a comment uh, for us, for the show, uh, you can reach us at info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at MoreliaPython. And please like our Facebook page, Morelia Python Radio. Uh, but this show, which you can download for free, is on iTunes, uh, Morelia Python Radio, or whatever your favorite uh, podcast app would be. 
uh, I'm sure uh, you will find Morelia Python Radio on that as well. Um, next up would be Carpet Fest, uh, Northeast Carpet Fest, is May 30th, 2015, Birds Barrow, PA. Uh, pretty soon we're going to be putting up the announcements that we'll be looking for donations uh, for the U.S. ARC auction. Uh, so if you're interested mm-hmm. in that, uh, if you already know that you want to uh, to uh, donate something, um, feel free to get in touch with me. It doesn't have to be a snake. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, anything of that sort. It could be some type of supply, uh, maybe uh, an artistic, um, you know, uh, something as far as, uh, you know, Morelia's uh, concern, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. painting or sculpture or something like that. I'm thinking of uh, Zach's uh, Blue Tongue Skink uh, sculpture. And, man, that would look cool if that was like a carpet python or something. That would look cool. Andro, Andro perched in a tree. Maybe a rough yeah. girl with its display. Uh, I'm listening, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, anything like that uh, will be cool for the auction. Uh, just get in touch with us. The uh, website is um, carpetfest.homestead.com. Uh, if you, for some reason, I can't get that switched over. Uh, even though when I look at it, it says carpetfest.com, but I don't know. So for now, it's carpetfest.homestead.com. Uh, don't forget the Northwest uh, Carpet Fest is uh, September 12, 2015. And there's also now a Southwest Carpet Fest, and that's hosted by uh, Designer Exotics, and that's going to be held at Prehistoric Pets, and there's already about, I think, 10 people headed to that. Um, so uh, that should be uh, an awesome time as well. Um, so you have quite uh, quite a few places that you can meet up and uh, rub shoulders with some fellow carpet python enthusiast mm-hmm. uh, for sure so uh, you can also follow carpet fest at, on twitter and you can follow it on facebook on our facebook page we have all the updates for all of the carpet fest going through that page so uh, go over there and like it uh, for updates pictures of past carpet fest pictures of future carpet fest and what we have going on. As far as me personally, uh, E.B. Morelia, uh, my website is ebmorelia.com. My email is eric at ebmorelia. Uh, I am having a pretty decent season, so uh, if you're interested in anything, you can check out my website, see the clutches that I have together, pairing. Uh, and uh, if you're interested in something, uh, feel free to contact me, and uh, I'll put you on the list. Um I will be at Hamburg with Owen. Uh, Owen might not even know that, but uh, <laughs> on Saturday. So mm-hmm. I'll be out there at the show. Um, I don't really, I don't really have anything to sell per se. But uh, well, you'll just be there for most. I will be course. there. <laughs> yeah. You know, so uh, maybe if there's something that you're interested in, as far as. Uh, had albino stuff goes. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Uh, if you're there with me, you're only selling my stuff. That's enough of you. So <laughs> you can uh, you can feel free and uh, to message me, and I can uh, 
I can bring it there. No, no it, problem. It, it, <laughs> God damn it. Anyway. And, uh, <laughs> make sure you like our Facebook page, EP Morelia. You can follow me on Twitter as well, EB Morelia, and I am also on Instagram, EB Morelia. I, uh, my other hobby is taking pictures, so there's plenty of pictures for you to look at uh, on any of those social media sites. So I got them. Cool. Uh, what I would say is you can go on to rogue-reptiles.com, check out all the stuff you got going on at Rogue. Uh, the... Um, Entire thing is uh, in flux right now. We're updating again. It kind of always seems like it's never right when I'm finished updating is like everything sheds and it doesn't look anything like it did. So I have to retake pictures and crap. So bear with us. Um, for we do have some animals still available. I'm down to one last super caramel jag. He's the last one. Everybody else is gone. Uh, and I'm down to one last caramel and one last caramel jag. It's like we're almost gone out of caramels and stuff wow. like that. Uh, do you have some sell, so that means that you'll need some of my snakes. Shut up, you. I got some tigers still, some bread lie, and I got another clutch of tigers and another clutch, uh, clutch of jags that I'm slow raising. And, of course, we're down to our last male Dominican red mountain boa. The rest are girls. So, and they're all on rodents. Now they're being unscented. Holy crap. So all the hard work's been done. If you want one of these things, now would be the time to grab it. Um, other than that, I have no idea what we're doing with clutches this year. I'm kind of waiting to see who lays and who doesn't. Um, we do have one clutch in the incubator, and that is to our red tiger, to our red tiger jack. So it'll be red goodness from amazing things. And I'm pretty sure I have a clutch of zebra jag coming. And that one was my zebra jag bred to a hot... Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> oh, wait till I... Slumming, man! <laughs> wait, wait till I finish, okay? Because you have to know the full effect of my shame, all right? Okay. It was, oh, God. It was my zebra... Bred to a brettle. No, no, dear God, I'm not insane. <laughs> I am a monster. Um, I, it was my zebra jag uh, bred to a high-contrast Queensland jag. Oh, wow. You went jag the jag? I know, and I hate myself for doing it, but no one else would breed with this female. <laughs> like, apparently she's the ugliest uh, female in Carpet Python world. So, oh, like... I tried her with high cons, nothing. I, you know, like they had no freaking interest. I tried her with this straight, straight zebra, no interest. Zebra jack all over her. And I'm like, I, whatever. And so, I don't know. All right. Wow. It's full on jag card. Full on jag card. I'm using an MBB line high con jag to breed to a zebra jag. My coastal. Blood is screaming at me. So I would. Uh, I I hope you. Well, I hope one of the eggs are at least a leucistic, so that uh, I don't know. I'll come over here. You want to see that? My dead babies. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so offended. If somebody was <laughs> in the desert, like parts, I'd be like, "What the hell is it?" 
talking about? Jack Tart, he wants to see his dead babies. Good Lord. Good Lord. Yeah, I mean, well, Nick was telling me that he should have, like, the first ever, like, just by mere standpoint of if he gets the animals he thinks he's going to get, he should have, like, the first ever, like, exantic Lucy or something like that or something like like, that. He should be getting different morphs of Lucy. Oh, yeah. That will be born just by just because he has to hit on those things, number wise. And I'm like, please right. line them up against like normal Lucy's because I want to see the difference. Oh, <laughs> and I'm like, I want to see the the like this is the all white one dead. This is the silvery white one dead. And this is like you know I like I'm like I'd be like oh they look cool if only they had lived. It's like that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh man, and I'm weird that I find that intriguing, but. uh Either way, um, you can go there. You can also go to on Facebook and find Rogue Reptiles on Facebook. Um, as far as shows, there is the Hamburg show on the 25th of April. So it's coming up. Uh, we will be there. We will have animals there. Also, there's the White Plains show. I'm not bending, but I might be going. So if you want me to drop something off, I can do that too. And I think there's a Habit or Grace show coming up too. I don't know when, though. And that's the same thing. I can drop stuff off, but I refuse to go inside that building. So you can come meet me in the parking lot. <laughs> anyway. Uh, you only get thrown out of a show so many times where you refuse to go back. Um, so. <laughs> I digress. Um, so that's enough. <laughs> so keep your eye peeled for updates for the carpet. Best. Uh, um, we're going to get the food already. We're going to get drinks ready. Um, if you ordered your T-shirt, they should be coming out soon. Uh, thank you for anybody who participated in that. And that's all I got, and that's all we got. So uh, thank you all for listening, uh, and we will catch you all next week for some more Morelia Python Radio. Good night.